Roll call, Carl. President Willie Adams. Here. Vice President Kimberly Brandon. Here. Commissioner John Burton is excused. Commissioner Gail Gilman. Present. Commissioner Stephen Lee. Here. The San Francisco Port Commission acknowledges that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatish Ohlone, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatush Ohlone have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatush Ohlone community, and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. Item number two is approval of minutes for the September 13th, 2022 Port Commission meeting. So moved. Second. We have a motion and a second. All in favor say aye. 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 Opposed? Motion passes unanimously. The minutes of the September 13th, 2022 meeting are adopted. Item number three is public comment on executive session. We will take public comment on executive session. Is there any public comment in the room? At this time, Jenica will provide instructions now for remote participants. Thank you, President Adams. At this time, we will open the queue for anyone on the phone who would like to make public comment on executive session. Please dial star three if you wish to make public comment. The system will let you know when your line is open. Others will wait on mute until their line is open. Comments will be limited to three minutes per person. The queue is now open. Please dial star three if you wish to make public comment. At this time, there are no members of the public on the phone wishing to make public comment. Thank you. Public comment is closed. Carl, next item, please. Item number four is executive session. There are three executive session items, all conferences with real property negotiator as agendized. Commissioners, may I have a motion to go into executive session? So moved. Second. We have a motion and a second. All in favor, say aye. 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 Opposed? Motion passes unanimously. We are now in closed session.
motion to discuss in closed session. I second. All in favor, say aye. 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 Opposed? Motion passes unanimously. We are in open session. Carl? Item number six is the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Item number seven is announcements. Please be advised that the ringing and use of cell phones and similar sound producing electronic devices are prohibited at this meeting. Please be advised that a member of the public has up to three minutes to make pertinent public comments on each agenda item, unless the port commission adopts a shorter period on any item. Public comment must be in respect to the current agenda item and the commission will take in-person public comment first and then remote public comment for each item. For remote public comment, please dial 415 655-0001 and enter access code 2496-775-9091 pound. And then during each public comment period, our moderator will instruct you to dial star three to be added to the queue for that particular item. And then an audio prompt will signal when it's your turn to speak. If you're watching this meeting on SFGovTV, there's a short broadcasting delay. To not miss your chance to comment, please dial when the item you want to comment on is announced and then mute your device and listen to the meeting from your telephone, which has no delay. And that brings us to item eight, public comment on items not listed on the agenda, where public comment is permitted on any matter within port jurisdiction that is not an agenda item, but no commission action can be taken on any matter raised. Thank you, Carl. We will take public comment on items not listed on the agenda. Is there any public comment in the room? Any public comment? Seeing none, Jenica will provide instructions now for remote participants. Thank you, President Adams. At this time, we will open the queue for anyone on the phone who would like to make public comment on items not listed on the agenda. Please dial star three if you wish to make public comment. The system will let you know when your line is open. Others will wait on mute until their line is open. Comments will be limited to three minutes per person the queue is now open. Please dial star three if you wish to make public comment. At this time, there are no members of the public on the phone wishing to make public comment. Thanks, Jenica. Public comment is closed. Carl, next item, please. Item 9A is the Executive Director's Report. Good afternoon, President Adams, Vice President Brandon, Commissioners court staff and members of the public. It sure is good to see a full room here in commission today. I'm Elaine Forbes, Executive Director of the Port of San Francisco. I'm going to jump right into economic recovery because I have a lot of good news to report. I have a long report, so bear with me. <clears throat> uh, we have just so much that's been happening and so much that will happen to invigorate our waterfront and, our, and uh, sustain our emergence uh, from the COVID financial crisis. We welcome tens of thousands of people to our waterfront with events and int intentional activations, and we carry that momentum from summer to early October, and we plan to carry it forward so that our waterfront is a great place for residents and for our visitors. And as we know, a vibrant and welcoming waterfront is key to our economic recovery. So we're coming off an incredible 
uh, Fleet Week week. I want to thank the commissioners for joining staff at various events to celebrate our sea services and rich maritime history. Fleet Week brought many visitors to our shoreline, <clears throat> and they found incredible waterfront experiences. We had a very clean and safe waterfront for Fleet Week, and I just really want to thank our maintenance team, our emergency services group, the maritime team, property managers. They all contributed to making uh, Fleet Week a really, really great experience, and we they went way above and beyond, and our waterfront was truly sparkling this weekend. And what a month our maritime division had in September. The public can now buy fish directly off the boat year-round for fish and crab, and that's just a wonderful thing to uh, welcome residents down to the, the Fisherman's Wharf. And I want to thank the commissioners for your support. Now we have Bay Area Council's new floating headquarters. The historic ferry boat Klamath at Pier 9 is open. This historic ferry boat, Klamath, is a testament of waterfront resurgence and represents a very impressive model of community coming together with fundraising to ensure the city is economically vibrant. Another first for the port, we brought tens of thousands of people to our southern waterfront to Pier 80 to experience renowned musicians and artists at the Portola Music Festival. San Francisco has always been a home for excellent music and culture, and we're proud to have been a, a contributor the promoters of this event intentionally connected with BIPOC community in the Southeast in a job fair for employment and with vending opportunities. Local favorites were there like Annie's April Radio Africa Kitchen and Yes Pudding. Next year, we will work with the festival partners to minimize noise. There were some noise complaints, especially in Alameda, uh, as, as noise echoed off the bay but they did work to minimize noise and we will work harder next year with a plan. I'm very proud of our maritime team for thinking innovatively and equitably about how to activate our waterfront. And cruises continue to bring thousands and thousands of visitors to the city. We will have a record-breaking year for cruise calls with expected 119 calls. In September, we welcomed, welcomed a cruise ship to Piers 3032, and this is the first one in over a decade. I want to uh, recognize the commissioners that were here when we built the cruise ship terminal back in 2015. And I want to say that we did not predict that that $114 million investment would return so quickly, and it has. So I want to thank you for your foresight to invest big in cruise. Par port parks and open spaces are continuing to be well-loved and active. Uh, with partners and community, we hosted the Sundown Cinema at Crane Cove Park. It was the This is the first for our parks. Um, our staff who attended observed a really great event that brought a lot of new community families and faces to the waterfront. In many ways, this recent activation and success represents the future and the promise of what our waterfront will be. Very vibrant, inviting, innovative, and equitable. Which brings me to equity. I'd like to highlight more equitable waterfront activations with our partners. We are looking very forward to hosting the Harvest Festival with the Ferry Building, FoodWise, and the, and the City's Human Rights Commission. This event will be Friday, October 28, through Sunday, October 30. This event is one in a quarterly series of events that celebrates and supports black-owned businesses. Building on the success of Juneteenth, we are excited for the Harvest Festival. 
another exciting series of activations we are hosting in partnership with Reckon Park at Heron's Head Park is the Bee Education Workshop at the Eco Center. The series began last uh, Saturday on October 8. Our partners intentionally pri prioritized outreach and attendance of BIPOC residents of Bayview Hunters Point, age 18 and over. The workshops are led by the Plant Bee Foundation and introduce the basics of beekeeping. And we partnered with the City Human Rights Commission again recently and the new school to host Pathways to Parity. This was a two-day equity-focused event with a call to action for increased access, support, and economic inclusion for BIPOC entrepreneurs and business owners. Discussions addressed youth employment. We had some of the nation's most forward-thinking policy experts on transformational economic empowerment strategies and related impacts. They were, future, they were featured in panel discussions. Tony Autry of our team and Tiffany Tatum of our team attended. They highlighted our own equity strategies and partnerships, including all the work this commission did during the pandemic to support our tenants. Reminder, 225 tenants totaling 13.7 million in rent deferral for more than 500 tenants, creating a million dollar zero interest loan pro program to support our LBEs that were financially devastated and enabling waterfront restaurants to create 700 outdoor seats and continue to do business while indoor dining was prohibited. Our team highlighted our continued work for an equitable recovery with contracting support, tenants, activation, and opportunities. We have a lot to be proud of, but we have also work to do ahead. I want to thank Tony Autry and Tiffany Tatum for executing this event on behalf of the port, and thank you uh, to Tony again and to Vice President Brandon for their work on the quarterly event series at the Ferry Building to support black-owned businesses. Finally, this morning at Mission Rock, we were the site of a major state announcement. Uh, the Secretary of California Labor and Workforce uh, Development Agency, she announced $25 million state investment to remove barriers to women, non-binary, and underserved populations entering building and construction trades. Mission Rock was chosen for this event because of the Mission Rock Academy, uh, where we saw a graduate class into the trades of all women uh, construction workers, mostly BIPOC women. Um, so that's why this site was chosen. So congratulations to the Giants. These are all examples of how the Ports DEI program includes the success of our partners who are intentionally committed to getting equity results. Now to resilience. Uh, today you have a big item, so I won't say that much, um, but I do want to say that we've, we've come a long way on the resilience program. Um, we started with a, a geo bond as a down payment to the risk of uh, earthquake and flood to our property. With the commission support on that and with the commission support on forming a relationship with the Army Corps of Engineers, we moved this program from knowing the risk to really understanding how to prioritize safety improvements. And now we're working with the Army Corps after five years of public engagement to, to refine what our flood uh, plan will be and what our future waterfront will be to protect against rising tides. There will be seven adaptation strategies that you'll hear about today. These strategies will be utilized to come up with a preferred plan across our waterfront. It won't be picking one strategy, but we'll be picking different strategies at different locations that make the most sense for our future. So this is a very pivotal moment for us. Um, it's a big uh, 
transformation this commission has been um, uh, pushing and pre preparing for. Uh, we have moved from uh, needing, needing funding, needing friends, <laughs> needing a way to get this done to actually having a real plan on, on reducing earthquake risk under the bond and now preparing to get a real plan on flood protection uh, with federal government support for the project. So it's a big, big moment for us in resilience. So congratulations to all. To key projects, I have more resilience progress to share. I'm excited to report that the Herons Head Park Shoreline Resilience Project has now started construction. As you know, this project restores and enhances wetlands and upland habitat along the Bay shoreline. Um, we also are including community engagement, local job training, and green infrastructure activities. So this is a great project for many different reasons, um, and I'm proud of the engineering division for getting that on the ground. And in closing, uh, to you commissioners, now with much appreciation and excitement, I would like to recognize Vice President Commissioner Kimberly Brandon. Uh, she will be inducted into the San Francisco State University Alumni Hall of Fame and will be celebrated as the Alumna of the Year on, on Thursday, October 13th at Chase Center. And I want to thank you, Commissioner Brandon, for your incredible leadership at this Port Commission for 25 years <laughs> and your contribution not just to the waterfront but to all of San Francisco for your civic engagement. And I want to recognize San Francisco State University as being an uh, institution of excellence uh, that makes such a contribution to people's lives and to our progress and to our values in San Francisco. So congratulations to you. Thank you. And not to mention, four out of our five commissioners are graduates of San Francisco State. <laughs> and finally, with a heavy heart, um, we have sadness. We have, uh, we have a recent death, a passing of Michael Hammond. Uh, he was a very strong advocate, um, and he worked for the port and in our advisory uh, committees, and he was part of the Bayview uh, community. He arrived in San Francisco in 1967. Uh, it, one of his first jobs was at the ILWU, working on the waterfront. He had a passion for the waterfront, and a passion for the port, and a passion for the Bayview community. He was on our SAC for 25 years, um, and he was on other various public bodies um, and um, uh, work, uh, work uh, bodies. He had a passion for his own uh, trade, which was he was a contractor, and he, generous, uh, he very gener generously shared his understanding of that trade. Um, he also worked diligently to list the Shipwrights Cottage, San Francisco landmark number uh, 250, and he was a very gracious person, and he uh, was an artist, and he, he uh, offered his, his space for parties and convening. So it's with heavy heart, we will miss him, and we ask that the meeting be adjourned in his honor. And that concludes my report. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Director Forbes. Now we will take uh, public comment. Is there any public comment on the room on the report of Director Forbes? Uh, being none, at this time, Jenica will provide instructions now for remote participants. Thank you, President <clears throat> Adams. At this time, we will open the queue for anyone on the phone who would like to make public comment on the Executive Director's report. Please dial star 3 if you wish to make public comment. The system will let you know when your line is open. Others will wait on mute until their line is open. Comments will be limited to three minutes per person. <clears throat> the queue is now open. 
Please dial star 3 if you wish to make public comment. At this time, there are no members of the public on the phone wishing to make public comment. Public comment is closed. Uh, Commissioner Gilman. Um, Director Forbes, thank you for that great report and such a great outlook for us as we come out of this pandemic from our cruise <coughs> ship calls to all the visitors. Um, the news reported today that we, we welcomed over 1 million people this weekend, they said, to San Francisco for Fleet Week um, and um, Italian Heritage Month in our neighboring community in North Beach. So um, I think that just really shows that we're coming back economically strong. And I did want to say I had the honor to meet many of the um, admirals and commanders who we partner with every day. The um, head of the Army Corps of Engineers had an opportunity to meet him and so really proud of our work and partnership on resiliency um, with our um, federal partners and our military partners to make that all possible. And excited to go to the Harvest Festival here at the Gray Building. Um, that concludes my comments. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Gilman. Uh, Commissioner Lee. Oh, no comment, just a great weekend, uh, um, except for the Blue Angels, couldn't see anything, but the, the, the waterfront looked clean and, and happy and, and, and crowded and traffic was terrible, but hey, it shows that everybody's coming out and spending money and it's good for the small businesses on the port and I'm very happy. Thank you. Vice President Brandon. Elaine, thank you so much for your report. And um, from your report, we can all see that we are definitely on the road to recovery. And I think that is so wonderful. The past month, the port has just, it's like we're at pre-pandemic um, attendance with, with <coughs> the cruise calls and with Fleet Week and with all that we're doing along the waterfront. And I, think, I just wanna thank the staff because they're just doing such an excellent job at keeping the waterfront clean, safe, and welcoming. So thank you. And um, I'm glad to hear about the Harvest Festival. And I hope, I think that'll be fun and everybody should try to attend because that'll be great for the ferry building and everyone who enjoys our farmer's market. Wonderful to hear about the uh, $25 million investment to our, our women workers. I mean, I, I think the Mission Roth Academy class of young women was just absolutely, there was just so much joy and hope for these young ladies' futures. And so I think that's a great investment. And I'm really sorry to hear about Michael Hammond and his family is in my prayers. So thank you for your report. Director Forbes, uh, excellent report. I'd just like to say, um, Vice uh, President Brandon, thank you for your 25 years of stellar service and being a long, one of the longest serving commissioners in the city and county of uh, San Francisco, your leadership, your guidance. Uh, you wear San Francisco, you wear the Port of San Francisco uh, on your sleeves and uh, truly you're a true patriot and thanks for all that you're doing and glad that you're gonna be inducted into the Hall of Fame. It's good when people are honored why they're alive, not when they're dead. <laughs> I agree with that. <laughs> I think everybody in the room agrees with that. You can't smell flowers, you can't hear the words when you're dead. Um, I just wanted to say too that um, I know the last several years has been tough and I know we've all died a little bit in this war we've had the last several years here and with COVID and stuff like that. And 
I've heard people say that San Francisco has seen its, its better days, um, that San Francisco's not the same city. Well, San Francisco is coming out of it and things change. And in life, there's good days and there's bad days, but it's good to see that we're gonna have 115 bookings. I'm glad that the noise was too loud over in uh, Alameda. <laughs> that's good, that's who we are. This is a port, right? And that's good, so that means the vibrance is coming back, people are coming back to the waterfront, especially to a city that used to have 30 million tourists a year. So I'm, I'm glad to see that. The vibe is coming back and we will be coming out of this new and refreshed and with a new vision. And you gotta remember this used to be a city where the average age is 27 years old. So uh, I'm hopeful, grateful, and I know this commission <coughs> is it's all on board and we appreciate the work of you and the staff at the port. And I wanna give a shout out to the staff in the back. Thank you so much for uh, making this happen. And as we go into uh, 2023, uh, let's continue to give it all that we got for the rest of 2022 and then uh, going to 2023 with a bang. Carl, uh, next item, please. Thank you. Item number 10 is the consent calendar. 10A requests approval of a resolution adopting findings under state urgency legislation to allow certain members of this body to attend meetings remotely during the COVID-19 emergency. That's <clears throat> resolution 2248. 10B requests authorization to award contract number 2842, maintenance dredging 2022 through 2024 to the Dutra Group in an amount of $7,238,750 <laughs> and authorization for a contingency fund of 10% of the contract amount or $723,875 for unanticipated conditions for a total authorization not to exceed $7,962,625. That's resolution 2249. 10C requests approval of a proposed retroactive license with San Francisco Community Fishing Association the California Nonprofit Corporation for 2,424 square feet of shed space and 1,602 square feet of non-exclusive apron space at Pier 45 Shed D on a month-to-month -month basis. That's resolution 2250. Commissioners, so is there a motion to approve? There's been a motion and a second. Uh, we will take public comment. Is there any public comment? Please feel free to hit the mic, please. Is there any public comment? Seeing none, uh, Jenica will provide instructions now for re remote participants. Thank you, President Adams. At this time, we will open the queue for anyone on the phone who would like to make public comment on the consent calendar. Please dial star three if you wish to make public comment. The system will let you know when your line is open. Others will wait on mute until their line is open. Comments will be limited to three minutes per person. The queue is now open. Please dial star three if you wish to make public comment. At this time, there are no members of the public on the phone wishing to make public comment. Jenica, thank you. We have a motion and a second. All in favor say aye. 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 Opposed? Motion passes unanimously. Resolution 2248, 2249, 2250, or adopted. Thank you. Carl, next item, please. <coughs> 11A is an informational presentation on the draft waterfront adaptation strategies. 
Thank you. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Adam Barrett, Deputy Program Manager for Planning for the Waterfront Resilience Program. I'm really excited to be here today to present an update on the Waterfront Resilience Program and specifically our draft waterfront adaptation strategies, which we are rolling out after nine months or more of very hard work with our partners. So today I'm going to start by talking about the risks that we're facing, <coughs> the Waterfront Resilience Program, what we've heard over our previous five years of public outreach and engagement, what we're considering in terms of how to adapt the waterfront, and go over the draft waterfront adaptation strategies uh, across the waterfront before concluding with next steps. <coughs> Excuse me. So we're at a pivotal moment for this program. We've developed seven high-level draft waterfront adaptation strategies uh, in close collaboration with our interagency partners and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and building on the last five years of public outreach and engagement that's informed this program. These strategies are ready for public feedback um, with a goal of reaching a draft waterfront adaptation plan, a preferred plan by, by next summer. As I mentioned, we've been working very closely with a number of city agencies, planning department, the Office of Resilience and Capital Planning, SF Public Works, SFPUC, SFMTA, under the Climate SF Initiative. And as well, we have a partnership with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to develop a San Francisco waterfront coastal flood study, which I'll say more about now. Um, so we are partnering with the Army Corps of Engineers on a coastal flood study for San Francisco. The Army Corps is a key federal partner in providing both technical expertise and funding for flood risk reduction and could result through uh, this process and significant federal funding for San Francisco for our coastal flood defenses. The port's goals for this program might be broader than the Army Corps' goals, which are focused primarily on coastal flood risk reduction. And so we may have additional community benefits, such as seismic reliability, open space, access, and other things that may be beyond what gets approved in this study. Those will not be eligible for, federal, for the Army Corps funding through the study, but they will be part of our locally preferred plan. So to move into the risks, as we unfortunately see all too often, we know that climate change is here today and has global impacts um, across the nation and the world. We are seeing these same impacts here in San Francisco. As we know, we have longstanding seismic risks that we need to be cognizant of and prepare ourselves for. As well, we have coastal and inland flood risks that we are addressing, inland flood risks meaning both stormwater and rising groundwater. Um, and that's what we're addressing through the waterfront adaptation program, sorry, waterfront resilience program and waterfront adaptation strategies, as these risks are only going to be increasing over the coming years as sea levels continue to rise. <clears throat> so this slide is showing the historic shoreline of the city. As you can see, pre-Western development, the city had um, significant inlets and coves and marshes and creeks coming down to the waterfront. Over time, these inlets have largely been filled in to the shoreline that we know today. And as sea levels rise, these are the lowest lying areas. So that's the, those are the areas where we're going to start seeing uh, the flooding, the coastal flooding coming in the soonest um, and the lowest areas. As well, as you well know, we have significant earthquake risk. Many of those same filled areas are subject to liquefaction, 
um, which is when the soil becomes sort of liquid and, and loses its, its stability. Um, and you see those in some of the same areas, particularly along the waterfront and along the former creek and wetland areas. This map is showing a combined coastal flooding through the end of this century, as well as that inland stormwater rain and rising groundwater flooding. And so this illustrates the complexity of the, of the hazards that we're facing, where you have water coming from various directions and needing to keep the coastal water out while allowing the inland floodwaters to drain out to the bay. And this is, this is some of the challenges that, that we're looking at and help shape our strategies. And I'll walk through that right now with this sort of simple set of sort of cartoon drawings. So this is the showing the city today. Over time, sea levels will rise. If we do nothing, that will cause flooding of low-lying lands and buildings and infrastructure. So we can raise the shoreline to defend against this sea level rise through seawalls, levees, and, and other things like that. However, this creates a kind of related risk in which groundwater and stormwater flooding would happen behind the raised shoreline, sort of a bathtub or ponding condition. And one way to address this would be with pumping or storage to reduce the flooding behind the raised shoreline. And so we're really talking about these two related forms of flooding, the inland flooding and the coastal flooding. And if we build kind of our, our sea, our, our coastal flood defenses, you know, at or near the existing shoreline, we have a small coastal flood zone, but we have a larger inland flood zone. If we build those defenses further inland, we'll have a larger coastal flood zone where we'll have to adapt more of the land to coastal flooding, but we'll have a smaller inland flood zone and reducing the risk, the, reducing the need for pumping and other measures. And so the strategies that you're going to see today rely on a combination of these two uh, types of flooding or addressing these two types of flooding. And any solution that will be endorsed by the city of San Francisco become our locally preferred plan will aim to address all three of these risks, seismic risks, coastal flooding, and inland flooding. So to speak about the Waterfront Resilience Program, or WRP, this was created in order to take actions to reduce seismic and climate change risks and support a safe, equitable, and sustainable and vibrant waterfront. The um, boundary of both the Waterfront Resilience Program as well as the flood study with partnership with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers is the port's jurisdiction from Heron's Head Park to Aquatic Park. These are the planning areas that we're looking at, um, Embarcadero, Mission Creek, Mission Bay, and Islaeus Creek Bayview. They're very different from a sort of structural, physical, as well as social perspective, and it's helpful to, to think about them independently. We know that there are areas outside of the city, shoreline areas outside of the port's jurisdiction that are also in need of adaptation at the shoreline, and the city has other projects and other plans that are working to adapt some of these areas. For example, the Hunters Point um, Shipyard Candlestick Point redevelopment area includes sea level rise adaptations in its uh, plans as well. The India Basin Shoreline Park and India Basin Mixed-Use Development also consider and adapt the shoreline to sea level rise in those projects, too. So there are planning efforts happening outside of the boundaries of this study that we wanted to acknowledge are happening through other jurisdictions within the city. 
<clears throat> we're building on over five years of public outreach and engagement for the Waterfront Resilience Program that has really uh, helped shape through asset mapping and discussions of values and priorities across those kind of three shoreline areas that I uh, showed earlier about where we should really be prioritizing our focus. We've done surveys and community-based organization focus groups over the summer and heard kind of more information and more feedback, um, specifically, you know, an openness to really thinking big and thinking about the different types of strategies that we can be using, um, a focus on um, kind of concerns about feasibility, cost, and disruption, as well as, you know, kind of a re rehearing uh, interest in really connecting the city and its waterfront. So those themes have continued to come up and some new themes have come up as well. Um, all the strategies you see today kind of build on public feedback we've heard to prioritize nature and nature-based solutions, heal the bay and ecology, to expand open spaces and, and enhance the city's connection to the waterfront, across the waterfront and really to center racial and social equity and environmental justice. We know that environmental justice communities are often hit first and worst by these types of hazards. Some of our lowest lying areas um, are within the southeastern communities, and we know we need to address sea level rise and other hazards in those areas. So now to walk through the range of solutions, kind of what we're considering, and this will lead directly into the draft adaptation strategies. So when we talk about the draft adaptation strategies, we're really talking about a mix of construction and policy efforts that will determine where, when, and how high to build our coastal flood defenses. We're talking about what are the physical changes or the measures that are involved. What, ty what, are they, what types of measures are they? Are they seawalls, levees? Where do we incorporate nature-based features? Where is it appropriate to flood-proof or do other measures to specific buildings or infrastructure, and what are the associated policy changes that need to come along with that, whether it's resilient planning and building codes, land use changes, or emergency warning systems and other operational changes. So that's the suite of things that makes up the draft waterfront adaptation strategies that you're going to see today. And we started with these sort of four questions that help us shape kind of how we're thinking about the changes that we could make. So what if we did not adapt to mitigate the risks? What if we adapted by floodproofing and moving buildings and assets only without building coastal flood structures? What if we addressed flooding at a lower rate of sea level rise? And what if we addressed flooding at a higher rate of sea level rise, consistent and recommended by California and local guidance? And our seven strategies, strategies A through G, align to these different questions, and I'll quickly go through each of these strategies. We're going to take those seven strategies, we're going to go out to the public, get public and community input, we're also going to be doing technical evaluation and cost estimating, doing cost-benefit analysis along with our Army Corps partners, and these are going to be used, as uh, Director Forbes mentioned, to develop a draft waterfront adaptation plan by next summer. As she mentioned, it's not going to be selecting one of the strategies. It's going to be choosing the best elements of each of them and building what we think is the preferred and best strategy from a cost and benefit standpoint, considering social, economic, and environmental impacts and benefits. And so now I'll go through 
the seven strategies. There's a bit, quite a bit of information here, but I will try to do my best to keep it high level and um, bear with me. Um, so we're looking at kind of two major time horizons. As, as you've heard recently, there are the Embarcadero early projects and other early projects that were presented last month. Those are immediate changes to improve disaster response and life safety. Um, and when we're looking for the adaptation strategies, we're looking at a midterm adaptation of 2040, um, by which we see kind of initial significant flooding, and then a longer term adaptation by 2090. Um, and at 2040, we're looking at um, kind of very, the, the, the strategies start to look very similar to one another because the projections of sea level rise don't vary that much. Um, and so we're really just trying to, to um, adapt to those kind of more known uh, uh, sea level rise levels that we need to adapt to. By 2090, we start to see a bigger range of uh, potential futures, and we start to see a bigger range of strategy solutions. This chart shows uh, the different levels of sea level rise that we are building to. So you can see in strategies C and D, these are the lower rate of sea level rise strategies. Um, and strategies E, F, and G, these are the higher rate of sea level rise strategies. These are meeting California State and City of San Francisco guidance to build, adapt to three and a half feet of sea level rise uh, by 2040 to last until 2090, and then seven feet of sea level rise by 2090 to last until 2140. So I'm gonna start with strategies A through D, walk through those. Strategy A is our no, no action strategy. This strategy takes no actions to reduce flood risks beyond projects that are already approved. This is really a baseline for comparison of costs and benefits of doing something. Strategy B is called the non-structural option. This means not building a coastal flood defense system, rather moving people and assets away from the risk or using non-structural measures such as flood proofing or elevating individual assets to reduce the risks and allows the water to go where it wants but, but, but reduces the risk. And this is something that's required by the Army Corps of Engineers as a point of comparison for studying the costs and benefits of other types of actions that we might take. Here's some examples um, from other Army Corps studies of what you know, some of those actions could look like. Flood proofing buildings, raising structures in place, doing buyout programs so that you're moving buildings, having warning systems. These are all non-structural options. And then looking at strategies C and D, strategy C is built to a lower projection of sea level rise. It would adapt the shoreline to one and a half feet of sea level rise by 2040 using structural and non-structural measures and would not be adaptable further. So we would be addressing flooding in the lowest lying areas along the waterfront here to that level. And so you can see the sort of dark green line is showing where you would need to make interventions to uh, adapt to one and a half feet of sea level rise. Strategy D would adapt to the one and a half feet of sea level rise by 2040, but allow that to be adapted higher by 2090. So in 2040, this is looking uh, exactly like strategy C. And in 2090, we would, it would be adaptable to adapt to three and a half feet of sea level rise across the whole of the waterfront. This would require raising the shoreline across the whole waterfront, 
would require pumping to let the inland flooding out, and it would require raising and elevating the bridges um, and connecting roads and rail over the creeks. Now I'll go into strategies E through G, <coughs> which are all built on the higher rate of sea level rise um, projections. So strategy E looks a little bit like C and D, but at a higher level. It preserves a waterfront that looks and functions much as it does today by adapting the shoreline. This is really responding to public feedback that we keep uses in place and, and kind of build on the existing shoreline as we have it today. Here again, you can see the green line being where we would build that coastal flood defense system around the entirety of the shoreline, including the port working lands and the creek inlets. This would require a significant amount of pumping to be able to pump that stormwater and groundwater uh, out and reduce flooding, reduce inland flooding. And it would also require raising the bridges uh, and the connecting rail and roads over the creeks because the water continues to flow through the creeks. In 2090, we would elevate that higher to seven feet of sea level rise. Um, and I should mention at the Embarcadero, we would be going, we would propose to go to seven feet immediately because of the complexity and disruption of dealing with a major construction project along the Embarcadero. These are vignettes that I'll flip through pretty quickly, kind of for each of the three areas, what this might look like. Here's how this strategy might look along the shoreline of the inner creek of Islaus Creek. Here's what it could look like at Mission Bay along Terry Francois Boulevard. And here's what it could look like along the Embarcadero with the ferry building in the background. Strategy F, also to the higher rates of sea level rise, we call managing the water. This would create a more active system for managing the flooding by relying on machinery such as tidal gates and pumps. In 2040, we would build a three and a half feet of sea level rise um, to adapt to three and a half feet of sea level rise and seven feet at the Embarcadero. The major distinction here between the previous strategy is the addition of tidal gates at the, at the mouths of the creeks, Mission Creek and Islaus Creek. These would be built to adapt to seven feet of sea level rise and they would protect the areas behind the tidal gates. So we would not have to elevate the bridges or roads, would not have to elevate the shoreline on the interior of the creeks. Um, the tidal gates would require ongoing kind of maintenance and operation over time um, and would present challenges for sort of the natural flow um, and habitat in those areas. 2090, we would elevate the shoreline to seven feet of sea level rise, the tidal gates would stay in place. In the southern waterfront, we would move the um, coastal flood defense along to Illinois Street and Amador Street. And what that means is that the uh, areas and port working lands there would be need to be adapted in place. Some of those non-structural measures that I showed, whether it's flood proofing, elevating sensitive equipment, having emergency operations plans and the like, but they would continue to operate in place with those measures. Here are some eye-level perspectives at Islaus Creek. Again, this is not elevate the creek edge, but it does harden and strengthen it to create a sort of artificial lagoon inside of the tidal gate along Terry Francois and along the Embarcadero, which would require a bit more bay fill in this option 
And finally, strategy G, aligning with natural watersheds would adapt the, the um, waterfront to, to seven feet of sea level rise, but work with natural flooding patterns to, in some areas, particularly in the southern waterfront, to flood-proof some buildings and infrastructure and move other areas away from the risk. And so again, in 2040, this looks very similar to the other two. We would build to adapt to three and a half feet of sea level rise along the waterfront. This would buy us time to make more significant changes by the end of the century, where we would pull back the line of defense and allow certain districts to flood and accommodate in those districts. So in Mission Bay, we would create a floodable district with significant changes to buildings, infrastructure, uh, roads, parks, and the like. It would be able to be flooded at the ground floor, but flood-proofed um, with certain changes. Um, and along Islaus Creek, we would propose to extend the creek channel and allow the water to come in. It would be a phased, managed retreat over many decades to enable more of a natural flow to Islaus Creek. Um, this would require kind of relocation of businesses and jobs in that area. No housing is impacted, but there would be, you know, there would need to be a concerted effort to kind of mitigate the impacts on the businesses and the jobs and the people impacted in that area. Um, here's an example of what that would look like along Islaus Creek, that same viewpoint. Here we are in Mission Bay with a sort of floodable district. And at the Embarcadero, what this means is really elevating at the shoreline as opposed to kind of filling out, extending into the bay. And so in terms of next steps, we are presenting to you today, we're about to embark on a significant amount of public outreach and engagement over the fall and winter. We're going to be doing technical analysis and evaluation with our agency and Army Corps partners, and we'll be coming back in spring with a revised set of strategies heading towards a preferred strategy or draft waterfront adaptation plan, what the Army Corps calls the tentatively selected plan, by next summer. And so we have a number of community engagement opportunities coming up. Um, we will have community workshops and meetings, walking tours, uh, District 10 waterfront community mixer, we have a lot of digital engagement tools. We have some interactive story maps with surveys embedded in them. We'll be presenting to community-based organizations, doing focus groups, um, and other engagement opportunities. We'd love and welcome your participation and happy to follow up on what that could mean. So we're hoping that you and everyone can join us at all of these upcoming events. And to learn more, you can go to sfport.com WRP. Thank you. That concludes my presentation, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Excellent, uh, Adam, and I know Brad's with you. Uh, now let's open it up for public comment. Is there any public comment in the room? If there is, please hit the mic on this issue. Seeing none, Jenna uh, will provide instructions now for remote participants. Thank you, President Adams. At this time, we will open open the queue for anyone on the phone who would like to make public comment on item 11A. Please dial star 3 if you wish to make public comment. The system will let you know when your line is open. Others will wait on mute until their line is open. Comments will be limited to three minutes per person. The queue is now open. 
Please dial star 3 if you wish to make public comment. We do have one caller on the line. I will open that line now. Okay, sounds good. The commission is... My name is Francisco de Costa. How you doing, Mr. Costa? deep into understanding what the gentleman just presented to the commission. I would say before the year 2035, we will have to deal with a tsunami. And so a tsunami will bring waves of about 35 to 50 feet. And that's what we should be prepared for. Right now, we all know, with the coming recession and the cost of building material, we will have to have at least $30 billion to address the situation at hand. In the meantime, we can learn from what happened in Florida and some other countries. But the main thing is the tsunami. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Cost. Appreciate your, your comments. And at this time, there are no other members of the public on the phone wishing to make public comment on this item. Thanks, Jenna. Public comment is closed. Uh, Commissioner Gilman. Um, Adam, thank you so much for the report. I really appreciate it. I just had um, three minor questions. I mean, it was very comprehensive. I'm not an engineer. This is not my field of expertise. Um, so my, my first question is, you mentioned on the slide you showed other planning efforts for parts of the waterfront that are not in the jurisdiction of the port. Um, candlestick as, an, as was an illustrative example. Are we collaborating and coordinating with those efforts? Do we have any sort of joint meeting or information or data sharing so that we're all sort of moving in the same direction? Because I, I wouldn't want us to choose strategy F and they choose strategy A, like as an example. Yep, thank you, Commissioner. Good question. We are collaborating with them. In fact, just uh, I guess it was last week, uh, the port and the waterfront resilience program were at the capital planning committee presenting w our proposal. We're a bit out in front um, on kind of what the city's standards for reducing flood risk and what elevations to be <coughs> adapting the city to would be and kind of starting that conversation to make that a citywide conversation so that we are all working from the same standard. Now some of these development projects have been, you know, adopted over, you know, over time and so they, they have built in kind of the best understanding of sea level rise, you know, projections at that time. So okay. Mission Rock, uh, Pier 70, Petrero right. Power Station, Candlestick, I believe they are all built to the same level of sea level rise adaptations. We are working with them, yeah. Okay, and so I guess on the vein of that question, um, Adam, so for projects that are not, you know, most of those projects are not fully completed, 
if we were to go with um, adaptation strategy F, um, would we then <coughs> compel those private developers to build to that standard? I guess my concern is that some of the, that construction is happening now. We know more than we knew then. It, and maybe you can answer this question, so I apologize if you can't. Could there be a scenario where we fortify the waterfront that we're responsible for with an adaptation strategy? Those private developments don't, and in 2040 or 2090, they're coming back to the city and county of San Francisco for support. So okay. I might defer on that um, to Elaine or others who might know more, but I, you know, my, we would be tying in to the high ground created by those projects. Okay. Um, so those projects would be lasting, you know, they have they are built to, you know, last pretty pretty far into sea level rise. They also some of them have built-in funding mechanisms. I'm not the expert on that. Looks like Brad might know more. Okay. Um, but yeah, we would be building to tie into those developments. More than you want to say. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then just my last question is you're doing all this great public engagement and outreach. Um, <coughs> how will you finally make a decision? Would you make a decision for one adaptation strategy for the whole waterfront areas, or would you maybe choose a strategy F for the Embarcadero and strategy G for Islas Creek? Yeah, they would. They could be mix and match based on the best elements of all of them. They could be mix and match within the different geographies, like the tidal gate is working, but this other feature isn't. You know, we, we, we would be building the best that we could think of. Okay. Yeah. Um, incredible report. Thank you so much for all of your work and your coordination with the Army Corps of Engineers. I don't have any Thank other you. questions. Commissioner Lee. Um, the only comment um, I have, this is um, very, <laughs> it's like watching a movie, right? Like, what's going to happen in the next hundred years? <laughs> but, um, you know, in case, knock on wood, not only just flooding, but earthquakes. What's, and there seems to be a lot of pumping going on here, you know, pumping the water out, the backwater. What's the, um, what's the backup plan for electricity? Are there going to be solar or any kind of, uh, you know, if, if somehow electricity happens, the grid goes out and water comes in? I mean, what's the backup plan? Is that going to be part of the uh, kind of the plan, not just the seawall, but maybe, uh, you know, power because of the pumping? a good question. Um, I don't think we're at that level of detail yet, but it is an important component of kind of how resilient these features are when we get to the point of thinking about how they're built, what the engineering standards are, um, and things like that. Uh, so we're, we're still working to identify even kind of like, well, what's the level of pumping capacity that we need? We can go from there to say, how are we going to generate that power? How much do we need? What are the alternative sources of power? an interesting consideration. Right. I think that'd be great addition to the plan. Thank you. You go ahead, Commissioner Lee. You, I'm you, done. Okay, thank you. Uh, Vice President Brandon. Adam, thank you so much for this very important presentation. Um, this, this has really been a historical journey for the port, and I want to thank all the work that the staff has done to bring us to this point. It's a lot of incredible work. And just think we just started five years ago. Amazing. And of course, this could not have been done without the extraordinary partnership we formed with the Army Corps of Engineers and the high priority of Mayor Breed and our partner city agencies. Without them, we would not be in the position where we are planning flood protection for our entire waterfront. 
So you guys should really be proud. We do need a vision for how we will adapt to sea level rise. And I'm glad to see that we are driving towards a draft waterfront adaptation plan that residents and community stakeholders can help shape and support. The plan will ultimately bring resilience investments and related public benefits to the entire waterfront. The commission stands ready to help as our port and city staff team engages deeply with the public. Now, as you said in your report, historically underserved communities, particularly in the southeast sector of the city, are often first hit and worse, are often hit first and worse by climate change. So I, I want to know, how is the port working to ensure that MIPOC communities are not left behind and that all communities are brought to the table for decision making about the future of our waterfront? Thank you, it's an excellent question. And I can speak to the Waterfront Resilience Program and then I know that, that Director Forbes and the port have been working on the racial equity action plan more broadly. Um, we are working on an equity roadmap for the Waterfront Resilience Program so that we can ensure that equity, racial and social equity are kind of imbued throughout the whole program. Um, in particular, as it relates to these waterfront adaptation strategies, the next step is really to be evaluating these, um, both through public feedback, but also really thinking about what are the equity implications of doing each of these strategies. Um, and so we're, we're, we're building that uh, equity evaluation framework, which we would like to bring at a future date, perhaps in concert with port equity updates, um, so that, that we can then sort of see what the benefits and burdens to BIPOC communities are from each of these different strategies and wh what's harming people, what's benefiting people, you know, and things like that. So that will be a robust and, and uh, central part of our evaluation of these strategies, along with the kind of inclusive and robust public outreach and engagement that we're doing focused, you know, significantly on the on the southern waterfront, but also thinking about communities that aren't in the southern waterfront that are often underrepresented and marginalized. So that will also all be part of the outreach and engagement. And then the equity framework will be, you know, a key lens for how we evaluate the strategies. Thank you. I appreciate that. So so who is doing the, the outreach and community engagement to ensure that we have diversity? So we have uh, uh, RDJ and Andrea Baker Consulting, as well as Interethnica, doing sort of culturally sensitive outreach, reaching out to community-based organizations in the southern waterfront. We'll have an in-person um, District 10 waterfront mixer, as well as an in-person uh, community meeting uh, in the southeast. Um, and it's going to be then two virtual meetings in all of the neighborhoods. We had, uh, we also have been doing a number of uh, community-based organization focus groups that have been led by RDJ, Andrea Baker, and Interethnica. And so are they the leader, are they the lead consultants that are doing the outreach and engagement? So it's all under our master contract with Jacobs and then our lead engagement consultant, Civic Edge, and then the firms that I just mentioned. Okay. And, um, you mentioned, and then I saw in the staff report there was um, a race and social equity assessment. 
that will be conducted. What, what is that? Sorry, that's, that's what I was just mentioning, the sort of equity evaluation assessment that we would be doing to assess kind of how the strategies are working from uh, a race and social equity standpoint. And so we'll do the assessment? Uh, we'll be working on that. We have a, a group of uh, kind of um, equity practitioners and leaders from across the city agencies. Um, we're also going to be doing kind of focus groups. So, but yeah, we'll be doing that with our consultant team um, and with the kind of equity, we have an equity working group that involves kind of the, the equity leads from various agencies, including the port. Okay. And so how will all this be incorporated into the decision-making process? Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, we're going to be going from here to developing kind of revised, narrowed-down strategies, and then ultimately to a draft preferred adaptation plan. So we're going to be incorporating, you know, hearing all the public feedback and doing our best to reflect that along with the technical evaluation. It will be coming back to the Port Commission. It will be going to other city bodies and commissions as well as kind of the central, you know, Board of Supervisors and Mayor to have a sort of ultimately, you know, city preferred plan. So that, that will be the process, you know, as staff will be bringing our sort of best, you know, uh, best evaluation and options that we can, and then hearing the feedback from the public and from the decision makers. And will our um, advisory committees be a part of this process? Absolutely. Or engaged? Absolutely. We'll be great, going to them as well. Because they, they yeah. are a great resource. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Again, a lot of work has gone into this, and um, to, to have gotten here so fast, and I really, again, want to say how much I appreciate our relationship with the Army Corps and all of the, the support that they have given us throughout the process, the engagement, the investment. I, I mean, we would not be anywhere near where we are without them. And this is a city project, and, and very excited that the port is, the leader, is in the leadership position on this project. And I know we have the right team in place to make it extremely successful. Successful. So definitely looking forward to you coming back next year, Thank if you so not much. before. Thank you. Adam, <clears throat> Adam Brad, what can I say? This is like a very meticulous report, but this is almost like a masterpiece. Um, this is a massive undertaking, right? And what I really like is that <clears throat> We are on the offense. We are out front on this. We're not waiting until something happens. I had an opportunity with uh, Vice President Brandon and Director Forbes to go to New Orleans after what happened down there when they had <clears throat> all the flooding. And it was billions and billions of dollars and the things that they had to do. And to know that we're out front, I'm just really impressed the methodical steps that you're taking. Uh, I appreciate Vice President Brandon asking about the community involvement and the uh, interaction. Um, this is a historical time for the Port of San Francisco for something like that. I won't be on the commission when this project, I'm sure, is at the end, right? <laughs> None of us up here probably will be. But to be a part of this on the ground level, thank you and, and your work. And I know it is a lot of time and this is not glamorous. A lot of time, our community, they don't understand it. But the younger generations and generations to come will benefit from this. And I hope that you 
that you understand for all the work that you put in. It's appreciated, but right now it's tedious work. It's not glamorous work, right? It's like being on the team, and you may not be the quarterback, but you're the guard that blocks for the quarterback. You don't get the recognition. We up here, we appreciate it, and I know the community appreciate it. So I just want to personally say thank you both and, and the whole team. Thank you. Ton of, ton of kudos, right? You're going big or going home. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Uh, Carl, next item, please. Item 12A is an informational presentation providing an update on the lease disposition and development agreement with TZK Broadway LLC for the proposed mixed-use development that includes a 192-room hotel, a dinner theater space for Teatro Zanzani, and 14,000-square-foot public open space and ancillary uses at Seawall Lots 323, 324, and portions of the unimproved Vallejo and Davis Street rights-of-way on the west side of the Embarcadero. Good afternoon, President Adams and Commissioners. My name is uh, Ricky Tijani. I'm with the Real Estate and Development Division of the Port. I'll be making this presentation. Uh, Josh Kinney and Rebecca Benesini are here to assist me with any question you may have at the end of this presentation. Uh, this slide provides an overview of my presentation. The purpose of today's presentation is to provide you with an update on this important project designed to achieve multiple objectives, including preservation and enhancement of music and cultural venue, in this case, Teatro Zinzani, and also to achieve some of the post strategic objectives. Post staff and the developer had wanted this project to start construction last year, but COVID-19 caused a delay. More on this later. The LDDA provides protections for the port and the developer, and as such, TZK is very motivated to make this project a reality ASAP. Towards the end of my presentation, I will invite TZK representative Jay Wallace uh, to make a few comments to hand this presentation. As part of the background, uh, the site here consists of seawall lots 323 and 324, and the two adjacent street stops to be vacated. The location is at Broadway and the Embarcadero, and it has easy access to all modes of transportation. The area of the site or the land area is, approxim is approximately 59,000 square feet, and the current use is surface parking operation. Project background and strategic objectives. Uh, Teatro Zinzani is a former port tenant that was in good standing that operated a very popular dinner theater on a portion of Pierce 27 and 29 from 2009 through 2011. In 2011, to accommodate the 34th America's Cup, the port and Teatro mutually terminated the Teatro lease and identified a portion of Seawall 324 as a potential relocation site. Teatro formed a development team, TZK, and met port preconditions 
that eventually enabled the Board of Supervisors in 2015 to exempt Teatro from the city competitive solicitation process. From 2015 through 2019, under an ENA, TZK pursued required land use entitlement. In September 2019, the Port Commission approved the LDDA, and in January 2020, the Board of Supervisors approved the form of lease. Uh, Port TCK LDDA and lease. The key LDDA terms include a schedule of performance, uh, stating what tax TZK must complete before the port will allow escrow to close on the lease and the site possession pass on to TZK. The LDDA also provide, provide for one year to close escrow. That will be from September uh, 2020 to September 2021, or one year, to close escrow and start construction, and provided up to four three-month extension options, each subject to a $25,000 extension fee. The LDDA also provides for situations where if TZK is unable to perform due to circumstances beyond its control, COVID-19 is one of those circumstances. It essentially moved the close of escrow from September 2021 to September 2023. That is a two-year delay. Uh, the lease and its terms are detailed in the accompanying staff report and will be executed at the close of escrow. COVID-19 impacts on San Francisco Hotel, year 2020. As detailed in the star report on this item, COVID-19 impacted many business operations, including this development. The key impact on the San Francisco hotel business as shown on this slide. Uh, hotels you know, were prohibited from accommodating non-essential travelers. Uh, tourism declined seriously. So were visitors due to charter in place. Average daily rate plummeted from $320 to $85, and occupancy declined from an average of 90 to 22%. Uh, some hotels even closed temporarily, and construction on some of them were postponed. So there was total cessation of financing for new hotels, particularly for the construction component. With this practical cessation of hotel construction financing, TV, TZK evoked the LDDA force majeure provision. Force majeure allows for the tolling of time period when, it, when a party cannot perform due to conditions beyond their control. And as we know, the primary driver for hotel and their revenue is booking the room and staying in the hotel which were practically shut down uh, between March to December 2020. This graph on this page is illustrating graphically uh, the impact of COVID-19 on the hotel industry. Um, average occupancy, as I indicated earlier, dropped from 90 to just 22%. So, on this graph here, the average daily rate is that red line, and you can see to the left is showing 80%, and 
And on top is the occupancy, uh, actually it's the other way around, the occupancy in, to, in 2019 is at 90%. So those level were the level from 2019, and you could see those wiggle line in the bottom is showing the impact of COVID-19, how it drops both the ADR and the occupancy. Towards, um, towards August, this year, 2020, you could see how those ADR and occupancy are itching up, uh, which is part of the recovery to bring us back to where hotel industry will be able to find financing. Uh, so these averages are recovering. Um, ADR and, uh, and occupancy are projected to return to normal level by year 2023 or 2024. Accomplishment has shaped to date. Uh, uh, TZK have been working uh, hard on this project to advance it. Uh, they've gone through CEQA. All of this is listed on, on, this, on, on this slide. In the interim, it's equally working on obtaining building permits, and it's working with its financial advisor on financing. Uh, TZK current plan is to complete the building permit process and find financing by July 2023 to close escrow. Now, in terms of staff analysis and prognosis of this development, uh, this graph here is showing the ADR, average daily rate of hotels and occupancy that are reported to be trending positively. Many Commercial real estate advisors are monitoring the market and providing periodic updates. An example is the is in this snippet shown on this slide from Marcos and Millichap 2022 mid-year report on hotel in San Francisco Bay Area. ADR and occupancy are trending up for many reasons as detailed in the staff report. So the first arrow here is showing that the ADR has increased by 38% for that 12-month period, which is from uh, May uh, uh, last year to the May of this year. Likewise, occupancy. Uh, construction activity is decaying to be trending downward, but not for long, because once lending with reasonable terms return, that construction will continue. Now, in terms of prognosis, um, the profile of this project uh, will lead to a success. It has only 192 rooms. It's in great location. It has entertainment element. And its closest comparable at the Embarcadero and Mission is doing great. So we expect this hotel to do way better. And of course, San Francisco economy is recovering. So this slide is showing the next steps. Um, we expect groundbreaking to be the next major update for the Port Commission. We're counting on that. A quick note, though, about this project expected benefits. They include the 14,000 square foot public open space, which is privately funded. It includes a 17% LBE goal, which they're uh, uh, moving towards <coughs> achieving. Local hire program, 30% by trade. 
and new jobs along the waterfront of FESA's hiring program. And of course, increased revenue to the port and the city. So I will now invite Jay to come up here and make some few remarks. After his remarks, that will conclude our presentation. Thank you. Thank you, Ricky. Welcome, Jay. Hello, Commissioners. Uh President, uh, Commissioners Jay Wallace, TZK Broadway, nice to see you in live and in person. I don't have much to add other than to tell you that uh, we are still fully committed to the project. Um, we're moving forward. We spent the last year and a half with uh, Roddy Washita. I hope I got that right. I sometimes say it wrong. I've been his team uh, on the building permit. Ricky Tajani and Josh and Rebecca continue to be great advocates and help on the project. Financing has been a challenge, as you can imagine. Uh, interest rates are crappy. Uh, we're in a tough time globally, but we commit, remain committed. And we are seeing a little bit of uh, movement, so our optimism is, is growing by the day, and we're you know, convinced and committed to get it done the way Ricky described it. Really happy to answer any questions, but just wanted you to know that we're here, we're standing, we're ready to go, and we certainly haven't given up, and we won't. So. This new hotel and theater will be on the waterfront sometime soon. Thanks, Jay. Now let's open it up for public comment. Is there any public comment in the room? Anyone would like to speak on this issue? Seeing none, Jenica will provide instructions now for remote participants. Thank you, President Adams. At this time, we will open the queue for anyone on the phone who would like to make public comments on item 12A. Please dial star 3 if you wish to make public comment. The system will let you know when your line is open. Others will wait on mute until their line is open. Comments will be limited to three minutes per person. The queue is now open. Please dial star 3 if you wish to make public comment. We have one caller on the line for now. I will open up that line. Okay, sounds good. Good afternoon, Port Commissioners. This is Cynthia Gomez, Research Analyst with Unite Here Local 2. We are the union representing hospitality workers. And we can confirm that the developer of the Teatro Zanzani Hotel continues to be a model partner. As most Port Commissioners uh, currently present have heard, this developer came to us early on in the process with um, and worked with us to sign an agreement that will guarantee that when those hotel workers eventually come to exist, they will enjoy a neutral process by which to decide if they wish to be represented by a union. These agreements are model agreements that uh, we believe should serve as a model for anyone seeking to bring a hotel to San Francisco, and we very much look forward to seeing this hotel come online. Thank you very much. Thank you. And at this time, there are no other members of the public on the phone wishing to make public comment. Thanks, Jenica. Public comment is closed. Uh, Commissioner Lee. Well, you know, I know it's been tough, especially opening a hotel, but I really missed its venue. You know, being an entertainment commissioner formally for 10 years, um, I was wondering what happened to it, where it was going to come back. Um, and, you know, raising money during um, pandemic was tough. Um, I guess I, the question I have is, are, we, are you guys still on track, you know, with your financing um, raising the, the capital because I think the city does need another venue like this in condition of um, creating more jobs. 
Come on up and hit the mic, Jay. Uh, yeah, I kind of got stuck in the same position when COVID hit and construction stopped. And I kind of understand that with the shortage of supply and labor, and since you're just now starting, costs are going to be probably a lot more than what you anticipated. Uh, but are we? How are you doing on the uh, on that end of it to hit your goal of, you know, closing escrow and everything? Does that look pretty good still? I, I, you know, I would like to say that it looks pretty good. Um, no promises, you know, guarantees. The financing world is very difficult, um, but there's a lot of interest. Um, our, a lot of the assumptions that we made back in 2018, 17, when we got, were moving the process forward, obviously are out the window. We lost the two years. Um, but as Ricky indicated, the ADRs and occupancy are roaring back, and we probably don't think that they're going to see the 2019 peaks quite as early as Ricky mentioned in 2023. But by 2024, when the hotel is opening, we're anticipating that we will have the uh, ADR and occupancy rates that would justify the hotel's existence. And so we're, we're very optimistic. Um, you know, we continue to work, talk to banks and lenders every day. It's, uh, I, you know, I'm out at the site showing it off all the time. It shows well. So uh, as Ricky said, uh, Ricky Tajani said, uh, our location is our best, is our best asset and we right. continue to promote that every single day. Is a number of the uh, investment group private, or is it all, are you relying on banks to push? Um, well, we have, you know, it's a combination. The, the capital stack is varied from private equity, common equity, preferred equity, MES debt, and construction lending. So we have to put together the capital stack. It's a $160 million project at this point. Um, so, you know, it's a complicated financial model. But there's plenty of interest, and um, we're continuing to work hard to put it all together and bring home the project, complete the project for the port and for the city of San Francisco. And then on the on the venue itself, um, it we strictly for the show, or would it also be a, a a part of the hotel to be used as a function room? Yes, uh, yes, uh, it will be the the theater will be housed there. The hotel will use it from time to time for weddings and so on and so forth. It's been, by, you know, they in the olden days when Zanzani was on the port, they would do buyouts all the time. And so those kinds of things will continue to happen. We've also, you know, paid attention to the fact that times do change. Uh -huh. And um, so we will hope to be able to use the theater with Zanzani's approval and activities, you know, for other uh, venues as well, be small music, th magic shows, theater shows, other things that could go in there as well. Multi-use entertainment venue. Great. Well, I look forward to it. If you <laughs> need any additional help on the, you know, let me know. Okay, we will do. Thank, thank you. you. Appreciate that, Commissioner. You done, Commissioner Lee? I'm done. Okay, thank you. Uh, Commissioner Gilman. Um, thank you, Ricky. Um, oh, and Jay, I have a question for you. Sorry. Um, so thank you for this report. I'm super excited. As you know, I've always been a strong supporter of this project and bringing the theater back. And you have definitely lived up, at least from my observation as a North Beach resident, um, to your um, community engagement efforts um, and commitment to being part of the community. I just had one question. It was with the staff report, so it might be a tag team also with Ricky. It was still listing your construct. It showed us a schedule um, from September of 2020 to September of 2022. And it was showing your construction costing flat. 
Um, and so construction and, and pre-development is one is 142 million, and you just said 160 million. So is that accounting for the fact that instruction has gone up? Yes. So the staff the, report is just not correct. The yeah, the staff report is I won't say it's incorrect, but it's probably should be clarified that the okay. the truer construction cost estimate today is closer to 161 million, 162 million than it is 142 million. Okay. No, I just wanted that clarification. Yes. I, I appreciate that, and good luck getting getting that financing. Um, I, I was just going to be surprised if it had stayed flat with everything we know about steel and pricing and supply chain issues. Construction costs went crazy between 2020 and 2022. They have started to maybe dip a little bit. Okay. Um, but uh, labor and, and commodities costs, are inflationary pressures have been very extreme, and so we're motivated to get this going as quickly as possible to stop that bleed, if you will. Yeah. Okay. And you still think you can get construction done in two years? Oh, yes. I think that that, okay. that, that part is easy. I shouldn't say it's easy. Nothing's easy. But uh, that is doable. <laughs> uh, you know, it's probably 18 to 24 months, so it could be shorter than 24 months. Well, thank you so much. I look forward to the groundbreaking you. and getting your capital yes. together. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. You good? Mm -hmm. Okay. President Adams, can I just make a quick comment? Go ahead. Uh, Commissioner Gilman, uh, in the reason we have that total development cost flat in there <coughs> is because uh, there are a lot that goes into the number that we're showing. So if the number goes north, like you indicated, yeah. to 160, that's almost a $20 million increase. We will need to see the other side of the thing, the sources of fund to cover it, which means that we will more or less be you know, going back to say we want to open this up to okay. come on for that. So we were just showing what you saw when we approved it. If there's any changes before we close, is a requirement under the LDDA that the sources and uses of funds need to be balanced. Right. Not only for us, but the lender will not even allow them to close until. So we didn't want to get into all those, all yeah. those things no, because the number will change. No, thank you so much, Ricky. And I assume before we close escrow, you'd be coming back with harder numbers. It was just, I just heard, I you know, I heard Mr. Wallace say that, and I noted in the reports so I was just trying to figure it out um, okay. for this informational. So right. um, I'm super excited. It's moving forward. It's going to be a great addition to the waterfront. All right. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Gillen. Okay. Vice President Brandon. Ricky, thank you so much for the presentation and the update on this item. Um, sticking with Commissioner Gilman's so, will the, Jay, do you think the operational costs will stay the same, or do you think those will go up, too? Um, operational costs, you know, labor costs have gone up, like, you know, two years later. So, yes, indeed, labor costs have gone up. But we are seeing that our ADR, average daily rate, um, and the revenue per available room, the RevPAR uh, indicators, as well as occupancy, you know, San Francisco started in the summertime have some travel come back. And it was a, a strong summer for those hotels that have already been built. Ricky mentioned correctly that um, the Hotel Vitali, which is now called the One, had a you know very strong summer and with you know astronomical higher uh, ADR rates than we had in, anybody had anticipated. I think they're now charging somewhere in the five hundred dollars a room night. Um, so there's so there's optimism and then and you know it's a as you know, Commissioner Brandon, you've seen lots of these deals. It's a jigsaw puzzle every day of the pro forma and the inputs and the outputs. And 
and you know, but we are committed to getting it done. We know we can accomplish it. We just have to have some help from the lending community to loosen up and you know release some dollars and get started on that basis. Thank you. Is is Teatros and Zandy are they still in operation? Uh, yes. Well, they're opening up a brand new show in Seattle as we speak. Um, they have great pre-sales. They you know they they got hurt bad by the recession because entertainment was closed. It's, Commissioner Lee can attest, you know, all of us know that for a fact. But they're back and they're roaring up in Seattle and very excited. Norm Langell, the director, producer of uh, Teatro Zanzani, so some of you may remember, sends his best wishes and is uh, looking forward to bringing a great show back to San Francisco. Thank you. Well, I really appreciate getting an update on this item, and I, I'm really keeping my fingers crossed and knocking on wood that this time next year we're in construction yeah. and that we have a hotel coming up on that lot that's been looking for a hotel for at least as long as I've been on the commission. So I, I'm so happy that we're still working with you and, and really encourage you to ask that staff for help wherever you need it to be able to get that shovel in the ground. Thank you, Jay. Ricky and, and the whole team and Jay, um, I just want to say I think my fellow commissioners have all been on point. Um, I, I really appreciate the patience that you've shown. You've been very measured in trying to get this done. Uh, I appreciate, Jay, your commitment to labor. That's important. San Francisco is a union labor town. And um, <clears throat> we need this venue on our waterfront. And I have been to Zanis in Seattle many times. And I know you know Joe Toro. So I talk to Joe quite often. I just want us to continue just to be patient. Let us commission know how we can help. Uh, we got some heavy lifting to get it done. We'll get it done. And this will just add to the splendor of our great waterfront. This will be that one, one of the missing pieces of this crown jewel that we have on our waterfront, that this waterfront, you know, we need that kind of entertainment. We need that kind of vibe, and we appreciate it. And like I said, please don't, don't, don't give up. Something goes up. Come to this commission. We, we want to help you. And to, to a person on this commission and the staff, we're all committed to seeing this getting done. Thank you. Carl, next item, please. Item 12B is an informational presentation regarding a proposed new lease with Autodesk Inc., a Delaware corporation, for approximately 30,590 square feet of office space and unimproved shed space located at Pier 9 for a term of 12, month, 12 months with a 12-month option to extend subject to Board of Supervisors approval. Good, good afternoon, President Adams, Vice President Brandon, and Commissioners. I'm Don Cavanaugh, Senior Property Manager for the Board, and I'm making this informational presentation about a new-slash-renewal lease for Autodesk at Pier 9. The current terms of the lease that expires in January of 23 are shown here. Of note is there's a TI credit for almost $30,000 for improvements that they made at the beginning of their term. They made almost $3 million of improvements. What, what they're leasing is space in the uh, Pier 9 for the Technology Center, which is 
has many different components of mechanical devices that do different technological things. They've invested a lot of money in the space. In addition to the lease, there are a couple of other associated agreements. One is a license for about 6,600 square feet of solar panels on the roof of Pier 9, and the other is a maintenance agreement for the public access area, which you're probably aware of that look like the barnacle seating structures. And, uh, and uh, Autodesk pays the port $3,000 a month for the port to maintain that. So we have a proposed new lease, which uh, is in draft form. It's, it's pretty close. What it does is it increases the rent uh, to parameter, current parameter rents, which causes quite a bump. Um, and uh, we're adding the access, uh, the maintenance fee, we're including that as well. So the, the increase in rent is fairly significant from uh, 54, I think it was $54,000. $51,000, almost $124,000 a month. And so that's why we're bringing this uh, matter to your attention because under the terms of the one-year renewal, that will exceed $1 million. And if they exercise their one-year option, that'll produce revenue in excess of $3 million. So we're, um, and then the other thing we're doing is we're on the, uh, assuming this lease is approved, we're going to terminate the solar panel license. We're going to terminate the maintenance agreement and incorporate both of those terms into the new lease so we don't have three leases to administer. Autodesk also has three other leases, but they're not part of this parcel or this uh, presentation. However, I would like you to know that we're renegotiating those to be coterminous with this new lease. So that's you want to add? So I, that's really the uh, extent of the uh, proposal at this point. We, we would uh, welcome questions, and we intend to bring this back to the commission for approval. Uh, you know, once we finalize it with Autodesk. Okay. Thank you, Don. Um, now this open it up for uh, public comment. Is there any public comment in the room? Rebecca, did you have something to say? Okay. Seeing none, uh, we will now, Jenica will open up the lines for any other comments from remote participants. Thank you, President Adams. At this time, we will open the queue for anyone on the phone who would like to make public comment on item 12B. Please dial star three if you wish to make public comment. The system will let you know when your line is open. Others will wait on mute until their line is open. Comments will be limited to three minutes per person. The queue is now open. Please dial star three if you wish to make public comment. At this time, there are no members of the public on the phone wishing to make public comment on this item. Thanks, Jenica. Public comment is closed. Commissioner Gilman. Um, thank you so much for this informational. Um, just want to say thank you super smart to have a coterminous for all the other leases. So I just want to support us doing that as much as possible with legacy leases for um, anyone, particularly for office. Um, I just think it makes it easier for us. I'm fully supportive of rolling in the maintenance fee and the um, solar fee too, so you have less to administer. And I guess I'll just say nice, I mean, I know it's parameter rent. We didn't come up with it particularly for them, but 
nice for us that it's almost a hundred percent increase on parcel B and about a six unless I did my math wrong, about a sixty percent increase on parcel A. So I'm supportive of the item. Thank you. Thanks, Commissioner Gilman. Uh, Commissioner Lee. I don't have any any comments. I mean it makes sense. I think it's a good lease, good tenant. We need more of those. <laughs> Find some more. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Lee. Uh, Vice President Brandon. Don, thank you so much for the uh, presentation. Um, Autodesk has been a great tenant, and I'm happy that they're staying with us for maybe a couple more years, if not longer. That's cool. So I'm, I support this. Thank you. Thank you. I'm supportive also, Don. Uh, Don, I, I think this might be one of the first times I've met you. I've just first yeah. time really seen you present, and I just wanted to say I really appreciate your presentation and Thank you. your calmness, and uh, you got right to the point, nice and short and sweet. So, uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Carl, next items, please. But thank you. Thank you. Thank you, commissioners. Item 12C is an informational presentation on the proposed development and multi-use lease of Building 49 located within Crane Cove Park by the YMCA of San Francisco. Good afternoon, commissioners. Uh, Jamie Hurley with the Ports Real Estate and Development Team. Um, to give you a presentation on this item, um, just in terms of the outline, what I'm going to be discussing today, um, I'll revisit the, how this project aligns with the Ports Strategic Plan, um, go over a bit of background and, and timeline on this project, and then we'll get into kind of the meat of the presentation, which we'll be talking about the key lease terms that have been negotiated between the parties. And, and then a review of the community benefits and the, and the diversity, equity, and inclusion plan. At that point, I'll actually have a representative from the YMCA come up to the podium and, and do that part of the presentation. And then we'll talk about, you know, we'll summarize and talk about next, next steps. Um, so again, in terms of strategic plan, and this is, you know, we've been sort of consistently um, talking about these four um, particular strategic plan goals as um, where this project fits in. So those are evolution, engagement, equity, and productivity. Um, looking kind of backwards, um, you know, this is a timeline that provides an, uh, a review of where we've been. So we started this project almost two years ago, um, about two years ago with a community outreach process, which then led into a request for proposals project process. Um, through that RFP process, um, this commission did award the YMCA of San Francisco um, this lease opportunity um, back in October of 2021, so just almost a year ago. Um, and since then, um, we've been sort of parallel tracking uh, the lease negotiations with the Y with um, you know, further due diligence, mainly by the YMCA, but also working in conjunction with um, port engineering in particular to understand what really was required in terms of further improvements to the buildings to be able to execute um, their program and their vision for the building. Um, and so that's really been what we've been doing over the last um, nine months or so, 10 months. Um, and, uh, you know, to get to this point today um, and then what we, what we plan to do is to spend the next six to eight weeks finalizing a lease and then bringing that 
back to you for approval. This lease will also be subject to Board of Supervisors approval due to the length and the, the amount of term. Um, just as a real high level overview of what the project is, um, in addition to the YMCA of San Francisco, there are two subtenants that are part of the, the team and will occupy portions of the building, and those are Dog Patch Paddle, um, which will be uh, operating in a, an aquatic center in part of the building, and Daily Driver, which is, um, you know, uh, you, you might know them from, they have an outpost in the ferry building. They also have their main facility nearby this site on Third Street. Um, so they're known for their bagels and their cream cheese and, and such. Um, so they'll be doing sort of grab and go food. Um, and so together, um, you know, the, the, the program would be, you know, focused on fostering community through holistic wellness, water sports, educational experiences, and with a particular commitment to um, new and underserved communities of the Bay. And uh, again, we'll talk more about the community benefits a little bit later. Um, this is sort of a, an overhead site plan view of how the space would divvy up between the three tenants that I just mentioned. So daily driver would occupy um, a, a fairly small part of the building in the south, uh, I guess, south, southwest corner of the building closest to Illinois Street. Um, this, the central part of the building, about 4,000 square feet, would be occupied by the YMCA of San Francisco. And then the sort of the, the uh, eastern portion of the building closest to the bay and closest to the beach would be occupied. And that's about 2,000 square feet. That would be the aquatic center. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, the investment, it's, it's quite substantial. So um, it's, you know, it's going to be the sort of the, the, the all-in budget for the base, baseline um, improvement, scope of improvements is five-plus million dollars, as you can see on the top line <laughs> of this slide. Um, in addition, the YMCA has identified um, about a million dollars worth of um, what they believe are um, necessary seismic improvements to the building, um, and we've been um, meeting with them. Um, we've met a couple times with our engineering staff, with their consulting structural engineering staff, um, and I think, you know, the port's position, we, we also agree that it's a good idea to perform uh, those, that seismic work. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit further about that um, in another slide. But if you add in those two things, you know, the total budget is, is you know, north of $6 million. Um, and the tenant, you know, the sort of the, what we've been talking about with the tenant is that they are really committed, committed to at least a $5 million project. Um, and that sort of leads into this slide, which, which gives you the, the lease term, because with such substantial costs comes the need to amortize those costs over a long period of time. So the term that we negotiated uh, with YMCA would be an initial 10-year term. Um, and then a series of uh, tenant extension options. So there would be four five-year options, followed by two two-year options, bringing the total possible term, uh, if they were to exercise all those options, to 34 years and nine months. That nine months is uh, to cover the, the construction um, of, the, of the project. Um, and again, the note here um, that the tenant is committed to $5 million at least in tenant improvements. 
Um, in terms of uh, revenue stream to the port, rent to the port, um, the initial year one base rent would be $93,500 per year, about $8,000 per month. Um, that amount of base rent would increase 3% uh, each year for the, that initial 10-year term. And then during the extension options, um, that, uh, that annual escalation would vary based on CPI and it would be collared at a minimum of 1% and a maximum of 4%. Um, the, the lease uh, that we've negotiated also includes um, a participation rent uh, or percentage rent uh, component for the for-profit subtenants, the two subtenants. Uh, so um, if they exceed their base rent share or their share of base rent, um, if their revenue, if 6% of their revenues exceed that, then we will get that revenue, um, that additional percentage rent revenue. So it's 6% of gross revenues for the subtenants. Um, and then I mentioned the construction of nine months and we propose to um, abate their rent during that construction period. In terms of tenant maintenance and repair obligations, it's very simple. The tenant is responsible for everything in the building, um, including uh, the public restrooms that will serve not only the facility and, and patrons of the three businesses occupying the facility, but to the public at large and particularly those visiting Crane Cove Park. In exchange for taking on that responsibility, that maintenance and responsibility, we have offered to uh, provide them with a rent credit of $2,000 per month in the, in the initial year, and then that credit would, would go up at the same rate as, uh, as the base rent. And then getting back uh, briefly to the, you know, improving the seismic resiliency of the building. Um, so the, the way that we are framing this and the way that we have um, negotiated it with, with the tenant is that um, it's, it's, you know, if we mutually agree um, that the work should uh, be carried out, this structural um, improvement, um, again, with an estimated cost of a million dollars, that we will split that cost 50-50, um, subject to a maximum of $500,000 for the port share. Um, and again, preliminarily, um, our review, um, you know, of, of the um, analysis that the YMCA has done on this, we agree that this, this work would um, be a real benefit to the, the building, you know, in terms of preserving this historic research, resource and also in terms of, you know, enhancing the life safety component of it. So um, just to kind of summarize, um, uh, you know, the, the main components of this, um, you know, by year five of the lease, um, again, the investment in the building that we're looking at, at least five and, and possibly up to like $6.4 million invested in the building. Um, and then in terms of rent to the port, depending on that percentage rent um, component um, and depending on, you know, whether we um, elect to go forward with the seismic work, we're looking at somewhere between $67,000 and $125,000 annually in rent to the port. Um, and then I mentioned the publicly accessible restrooms maintained by the YMCA. Again, a real benefit, we think, 
um, and something that we know that the public is very interested in. Um, and then the facility itself, it'll, it'll offer food and beverages, uh, it'll offer water recreation, lessons, rentals, um, and it'll offer a community wellness facility. And there's um, a lot of community vet benefits that go into that. Um, and again, I'll bring up the YMCA in a moment. Um, I'm going to mention real briefly the next steps after today. Um, again, we want to spend the next six to eight weeks finalizing the lease before bringing it back to you for approval. Um, and then we also will review this lease um, with, again, with the Southern Waterfront Advisory Committee at an upcoming meeting of theirs before we bring it back to you for approval. Um, and then we'll bring it back to you and it'll also go to the Board, board of Supervisors, as I mentioned. And so with that, I want to introduce Takaja Gardner from the YMCA uh, to talk about uh, community benefits. Well, hello, commissioners. It's an honor to be here to talk about this amazing project that we are so excited about. Um, as Jamie mentioned, I'm Takaja Gardner with the YMCA, but also serving as one of the leads for this particular project. The mission of the YMCA of San Francisco is to build healthy, equitable, and sustainable communities for all generations. We're guided by our vision of building strong communities where you can be, belong, and become. In fulfilling our mission and vision, the Y aims to champion an accessible, connected, resilient, and just Bay Area. Enhance individual, staff, family, and community health and well-being, open pathways to social and economic mobility, expand opportunities for all ages and life stages, and advance a safe, collaborative, and sustainable future. The Y has prioritized diversity, inclusion, as well as equity consistently for over a decade through engagement of a consultant in late 2020 the Y has developed together with its board and community an equity and anti-racism strategy with eight areas of focus. The Y, along with Dollpatch Paddle, Daily Driver, are aligned with the port's diversity and equity goals, which are evident in our diverse uses and community benefits. The Y serves over 30,000 households each year through our wellness offerings. 35% of our members receive financial assistance of subsidy for our gym memberships. But it's important for us to note that no one is turned away for an inability to pay. We do offer free memberships to our community members, as well as daily passes for those who are intended to just receive services for one day. With 14 branches and over 100 sites, the Y looks to attract a diversity of citywide and regional users. Our membership for all model allows access to all Y facilities, regardless of their home branch. Crane Cove members, therefore, will have access to a myriad of health and wellness opportunities in all of our Y facilities, including six pools. Because of our nationwide membership, we've expanded this opportunity 
Members may visit any participating YMCA in the United States as well as Puerto Rico at no additional cost. The WISE Wellness Center at Building 49 is also expected to be an anchor for youth and community programming through local CBO partnerships. The Y is really seen as a bridge builder. And so not only do we want to ensure that our members, our communities have access, but we partner with agencies and community-based organizations to ensure that they also have access to this valuable asset. We are looking to partner with Dog Patch Paddle, as Jamie indicated, and this is an incredible opportunity when we're talking about the maritime and ensuring that we are accessing water sports. By partnering with Dog Patch Paddle, we are opening new opportunities for water sports access to underserved communities, as we are providing a diverse component of fitness and recreation activities for holistic offerings. Since Crane Cove Park opened, Dog Patch Paddle has been the de facto water sports operator and guardian of the community seeking safe and healthy outdoor activities on the cove. They also provide summer and after school programs. As it relates to our parks and open spaces, our contribution to Crane Cove Park will activate and enliven the experience of visitors. Completing the original vision that you all set forth for the port, the programming available for our combination with service partners include concessions through the daily driver and it is also poised to bring community benefits to life on the cove. We're also committed to maintaining the public restrooms as Jamie indicated. Our investment of over $5 million in the port's asset will stimulate new community jobs. That is important for us to ensure that people who live and serve the community also have those opportunities for employment. We're also looking to support with the generation of revenues for not only the port, but for the surrounding businesses. Thank you, and we welcome any questions you may have. Thank you. I think I'll just, I'll just close, and I just wanted to mention, um, kind of in keeping with Takaja's um, talk about community benefits, that this, this lease will be subject to the Southern Waterfront Community Benefits and Beautification Policy, so 6.5% of the port lease revenues will be dedicated to that fund. And then there's a variety of, of ways in which the YMCA and their partners will support the goals of that policy. And I think she touched on a lot of that in her, her remarks. Um, so that concludes the presentation. Thank you, commissioners. We look forward to your questions. Thank you, Jamie and Squadron. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. I have a speaker, last name Hicks. Thank you. Hi, uh, my name is Tamara Hicks. I am the, the owner of Daily Driver. We are on 3rd Street. We make amazing organic bagels and we make um, cream cheese with milk that comes down from our farm and our neighbor's farm up in Marin. My husband and I have had a farm for 20 years and I'm a clinical psychologist and much of that operation is about bringing youth and 
educating people about our local food systems. We have also like had a, um, uh, a foot in Petrail Hill for 20 years, and so when an opportunity came up to start daily driver and create this maker space, you can see all of the cheese being made there and all the bagels being made. Um, and so when the, the Y approached us about partnering, it just seemed like a really amazing opportunity for um, for us to like do more in in dog patch in the central waterfront and um, and we really feel like we have matched values and I have to say this has been a very inspiring I came to this thinking like oh what's this going to be about thank you for all the work that you do for the part poor I actually was like moved to tears a couple of times today and um, and it just reminded me how much um, I love San Francisco and I just uh, so appreciate the, the work that you do for the city and why I'm emotional. Um, um, but this has been very inspiring and I, I, I thank you guys and all the staff and the commissioners for the work that you do for the port and we're super excited to um, be part of the vibrancy of Crane Cove that's already been started. It makes me so happy whenever I go by and see people out there with their families and enjoying it. And so we're very excited to be a, a part of that. Thank you. Thank you, Tamara Hicks, for your heroic work in our community. Um, is there any more public comment in the room? Any more public comment in the room? Uh, Jenica will provide instructions now for remote participants. Thank you, President Adams. At this time, we will open the queue for anyone on the phone who would like to make public comment on item 12C. Please dial star 3 if you wish to make public comment. The system will let you know when your line is open. Others will wait on mute until their line is open. Comments will be limited to three minutes per person. The queue is now open. Please dial star three if you wish to make public comment. At this time, there are no members of the public on the phone wishing to make public comment. Thanks, Jenica. Uh, public comment is closed. Commissioner Lee. Uh, you know, the partnering with the YMCA is such a great thing. I mean, I've known them for years, especially they have in Chinatown and here in Barcadero. <clears throat> and to have a small business like your daily driver there. So my question to you, are you going to offer any classes to make these bagels for the community? <laughs> I mean, I think that would be an extra added benefit, you know, because, you know, in small business, especially us small business guys, you know, it, we try to do anything to help the community and bring more people for training and especially the job market is so tough. So it'd be, it'd be great to see some classes maybe at your place and the, the people that come to the Y and it's a good revenue driver for the port too, because the Y is such a national organization. So I, I applaud whoever got this together, <laughs> but I'm fully in support of this project. Thank you. Thank you there, Commissioner Lee. Commissioner Gilman? Uh, similarly, I think it's going to be a love fest. We've been excited since the Y won the award and the RFP, and it's so exciting to see you coming in to Crane Cove Park and Daily Driver um, and the paddle, paddle folks. So I'm, I'm super excited about this. Um, really, I've seen firsthand someone who worked in the Tenderloin for over 20 years, what the Y can really do to anchor an organization and to help and uplift youth, and same with what they do in Chinatown. So very excited about this. 
um, and want to commend you again on the fact you don't turn away young adults or youth who need to access services at the Y regardless of ability to pay. Um, and um, I look forward to a, a community party where um, we, we all eat bagels and cream cheese um, and look at the waterfront and then go work it off by working in the gym. So thank you so much. We're so excited for you to come to Queen Cove Park. Thank you, Commissioner Gilman. Vice President Brandon. Jamie and Kaiser, thank you so much for the presentation. I've always been a big fan of the Y, including when I got to serve with Takaja at the Baby Y for a couple months when she first became executive director before she moved on to higher pastures. <laughs> um, I, I think this is a great opportunity. I think it's going to bring a lot of um, excitement and, and people to the southern waterfront, to Crane Cove Park, um, to have the site activated and actually have tenants there that that will bring more people, more activation, a lot of exercise, a lot of good food to uh, the southern waterfront will be absolutely wonderful. I just have one question and, and just trying to understand. I know that the Y will be the master tenant and then we'll have and then two sub tenants. And so does this, do the subtenants pay rent to the Y? Yeah. Or are they just paying percentage rent? And uh, then, oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. So, yes, um, the, the YMCA will re be responsible for paying all of the base rent um, so that, so the subtenants will, will pay um, the Y and then the Y will pass through, you know, their portion of the base rent to the port. Um, and so the way that it'll work with the percentage rent is, um, you know, there'll be, have to be a calculation, you know, based on their um, reported uh, gross revenues to figure out, you know, does, does 6% of the uh, gross revenues for the two subtenants, is that higher than their uh, portion uh, of the total base rent that is due to the port? If so, that'll trigger uh, percentage rent being paid. Um, but at a minimum, we'll get the base rent that I mentioned. It's about $8,000 a month, um, and that'll be paid by the Y. They're, they'll be responsible for collecting that and paying it, um, you know, on behalf of their tenants. So I guess I'm just, I'm trying to figure out, so is the Y is the master tenant. Correct. And then we have two subtenants. And for some reason, if something doesn't work out with one of the subtenants, then it will be up to the Y to replace those subtenants, or how, how does that work? Yeah, I think we would we would need to work together on that. Um, you know, we will need to consent to any uh, subtenant uh, or sublease, um, and um, so you know, this is a long-term lease. I mean, if if they were to exercise all of their their options, so it certainly is a possibility that there will be a need. Um, to replace one or both of the subtenants at some point in the future, potentially, and we'll just need to um, work together to ensure that um, that so, you know so the, the overall would, the Y would be responsible correct. for those subtenants, but we would have to approve correct whatever. Okay, that's correct. I just I just wanted to understand the concept of how it all works together, but I think starting out these are three great tenants. That right. are going to really do a great job activating Crane Cove Park in the area. So thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. 
This, um, this speaks to our, our social conscience and our commitment to community. And I know the port, you know, we run a business, but this is a part of our mission statement. And this speaks directly uh, to our community, to young people, elderly people, and everybody in between. And uh, this, this, this is something that really makes my heart like leap with joy because this is something that we have an opportunity to do something and it, it's, um, it inspires people. These are sometimes some of the stories you never hear. And I just really appreciate the work and the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. Uh, you're one of those unsung heroes and we appreciate it. And uh, the next generation and all of us will, will benefit gravely for it. Thank you. Uh, Carl, next item. Please. Thank you, Commissioner. Item 12D is an informational presentation for the port to enter into an agreement to purchase non-potable water from Mission Rock Utilities for China Basin Park and other port accepted areas of the Mission Rock <coughs> site at Seawall Lot 337, bound by China Basin Channel, 3rd Street, Mission Rock Street, and San Francisco Bay. Thank you, Carl. Good evening, President <coughs> Adams, Vice President Brandon, Commissioners. I'm Phil Williamson, Project Manager with the Port's Real Estate and Development Team. I'm pleased to be before you this evening for this second informational presentation on the Mission Rock Recycled Water Purchase Agreement. You may recall we presented a high-level overview of the project's recycled water components back in March of this year. Uh, tonight, I will be covering the first portion of the presentation and then handing uh, the podium over to Josh Keene to bring you up to speed and up to date on our negotiations with the project team. This slide is, uh, provides a quick update of the project and where we are today. Um, as you know, if you pass the site or just in general, construction is um, happening on all four of the phase one parcels. Uh, we completed the uh, foundation for parcel F uh, a couple weeks ago, and we'll start to see the vertical process um, and, the, and the erection of steel start on that site in the next couple weeks. And all other parcels are currently underway in construction, anticipating occupancy of the site to begin in the middle of next year. Uh, China Basin Park, as you know, is also under construction and targeting completion in the middle of 2023. And of note, the project is doing all this work and staying within the budget that you approved last in 2019, uh, despite rising construction costs and, of course, the increase in interest rates of late. The project continues an upward trend toward meeting its 20% LBE goal and is extremely active in encouraging and nurturing businesses to become involved in helping to build the Mission Rock project. Dating back uh, to the initial RFP in 2008, the Mission Rock project has set a high bar for sustainability. The developer is fully committed to this core project value as evidenced by the sustainability and infrastructure plans approved by the commission in 2018. In 2019, you approved a revised phase one budget that did not include the recycled water infrastructure, but rather gave your support for the formation of a private, not-for-profit utility entity, Mission Rock Utilities, or MRU, opening a pathway for a private operator model allowing for financing outside of the project's limited public finance dollars. Uh, 
This slide um, shows the many prongs of the Mission Rock sustainability strategy. This evening we're focusing on water and specifically the infrastructure and the agreements needed to reach our goal of using 100% non-potable water for all the project's non-potable water needs. Not atypical for Mission Rock, we are leading by example and we note that the city is updating its climate action plan to include a new chapter on water that focuses on the multiple facets of water use, including water recycling and wastewater treatment. As mentioned, the commission voiced its support for the formation of Mission Rock Utilities by resolution in 2019. MRU has been formed and has secured financing to construct and operate the Mission Rock water recycling system. And the system includes piping in the project streets and a water treatment plant now being constructed in parcel B, which you see uh, behind parcel A on 3rd Street there. And my last slide of the evening is literally a flow chart depicting the project's wastewater treatment system. In high-level summary, the system collects wastewater from the project's buildings, treats it on site at parcel B, and then distributes the treated water back to the buildings, the parks, and the open spaces for all the non-potable purposes, including irrigation, cooling tower water, and toilet use. The PUC provides the project with potable water for our potable water needs, including sinks, showers, restaurant kitchens, and drinking fountains. The potable water can be directed to meet non-potable. Hi, Josh. Yes, okay. I'm here. Great. We have Maggie Caden from and Mission. We have Michael. Yeah, Michael, Michael Ahern. And Michael Ahern, he represents Evergreen Energy. And they are essentially going to be the operators through Mission Rock Utilities. So they can make, give you explanations about recycled water, how it works, any questions you have about the technical structure, the deal, uh, or the negotiation, Maggie's happy to probably answer that. But otherwise, I'm up here, too. Okay. All right. Um, did Maggie have something she wanted to say? No? Okay. Yes, yeah, I think she's just available. If okay. You have questions. Well, Phil, Josh, Maggie, uh, you triple teamed this one, yeah. so that's, that was good, you guys. You didn't leave anything left on the plate. Okay, at uh, this time, uh, let's open up for public comment. Is there any public comment in the room? Uh, seeing none, at this time, Jenica will provide instructions now for remote participants. Thank you, President Adams. At this time, we will open the queue for anyone on the phone who would like to make public comment on item 12D. Please dial star 3 if you wish to make public comment. The system will let you know when your line is open. Others will wait on mute until their line is open. Comments will be limited to three, mi three minutes per person. The queue is now open. Please dial star three if you wish to make public comment. <clears throat> At this time, there are no members of the public on the phone wishing to make public comment. Thanks, Jenica. Public comment is closed. Commissioner Gilman. <clears throat> understanding though the finance part um, of it. So there's going to be this utility and it's set up and it's doing this amazing environmental work to save us all water. Yeah. We have, because we have possession of the park, 
we are in an agreement with it. But we will actually never spend a dime of court money on it unless for some reason we're managing the park because we're going to contract someone to manage the park and they're going to have access to the special tax that we spoke about. Um, well, there's two yes and no. So the, the, the first answer would be yes. If we have a park tenant, the intention would be to assign that all the obligations to that tenant. However, if it's a park tenant that's an affiliate of Mission Rock Partners, which is what we are intending, because obviously yeah. the synergy is with it, we would not spring the special service tax. They would instead, uh, and Maggie, correct me if I'm wrong, they would intend to manage the park, its special events, plus its operations of the park, plus the purchase of the recycled water obligations, they would just assess direct dues to the HO, to the vertical parcels okay. rather than the special service tax. So it's kind of an equivalency, but it's money that, that would never come to the port directly, the special Correct. service tax would. So the special service tax is a backup in case for some reason, I don't know, Mission Rock has a meltdown and they can no longer deal with the park anymore and we have to take responsibility for it. We then can kick this tax into gear to protect us from the financial obligation. That's correct. Okay, you answered my questions. I'm all good. Thank you. <coughs> Commissioner Lee? Um, I really don't have any comments or questions. I think, you know, recyclable <clears throat> the treatment water is the way to go for the future. As long as it pays for itself, you know, how we can at least break even on this thing. The special tax thing helps. Uh, but I'd just like to see, you know, how it goes. Um, it does make sense. A lot of buildings are doing it. They're recycling their water through whatever treatment. I've seen them uh, come up in new buildings. So, um, yeah, I look forward to see, you know, we it's still kind of in process, right? We have to get yep. tenant and, you know, hopefully it pays off. But I think this is the way to go for the future. Well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you for that. And, and yes, you're correct. It is, I mean, it is the way to go. It's the legislation in the city has been passed to support this. The 12C recycle water ordinance from a few years ago was to apply to specific projects like this. The reality is that not every project is is able to comply with that. So we're actually made a purposeful statement back in 2019, we have to make this work, we go forward with it. So we are a little bit of an early leader here, um, which has some costs and risk, but it's kind of what San Francisco does in general, especially when it comes to sustainability and the future of this. I mean, it's, it's, it's consistent with other things we've been talking about today with resiliency, sea level rise, and community benefits, the, the environmental sustainability and leadership is kind of. I mean, it always costs more in the future, you know, now, and then it pays off in the future in the long run. I mean, it's like any business, yep. you know, so I'm all support of that. Thanks, Commissioner Lee. Uh, Vice President Brandon. Is there any risk to the port? Some risk to the port, I guess, could be if the whole system fails and goes underwater and collapses, um, it could. Uh, but we're not, you know, that would be probably an indirect risk to the port on some level because it would be more a failure of the whole system. Um, I, I think the risk is pretty limited because of the special service tax and the assignment. Um, it's hard to say if, yeah, if there's any risk. Um, but I think we've done as much as we can to mitigate the risk. Um, and, and just for general knowledge, can you tell us the benefit of portable versus non-portable water? 
Well, the reality is, is potable, so potable water is the water supplied by the PUC as far as it goes, and it's, it's pulled in, and, and, and Michael Ahern, please free to or expand upon this when I'm done, but it's kind of clean, treated water that's gone through its own process, what we think of as hetchy water almost, comes in, it's delivered, and typically once it's used, it goes into the bay or goes out somewhere and it's not used on site. So what we're doing is spending the money to, instead of having to pull 1.5 million gallons of new water, it's an, really an avoidance cost of, or an avoidance purchase of having to bring in that 1.5 million for our potable <coughs> uses. We're treating it with the existing water on site. So that's one of the biggest drivers also for costs, just so everyone's familiar. That's just coming in direct, goes away, and goes into the bay. This is coming in as potable water for its drinking water for other uses, but then it's being treated. What's happening with this system is it's taking that water or runoff from rainwater and treating it um, and including the black water in there. And that's what's really different is it's not just recycling rainwater that gets diverted to irrigation. It's taking all the water generated from the site, including the black water. So potable is used for the things like drinking. Non -pot potable can really be used for anything, but it's a little bit, it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a limited resource, right? Recycled water, technically, we could generate as much as we need from the non from the used potable water. So that I think that's, that that last statement, Josh, is perfect. Is the perfect framing of it. It's it's making sure that we are only using the limited resource for the things we have to use it for, and we're using that recycled water for purposes where we can continually reuse it and reuse it. Got it. And so, because of this treatment process, that's why it costs more than potable water. That would be that's a, a one of the one way to say it. Yes, um, like on a basic level, the cost is much more intensive than the work the PUC does to treat it at the original source um, because we're recycling it. I do want to clarify one. One of the biggest drivers, though, is there's the capital financing of this infrastructure is a portion of this. So. That was originally contemplated. It could have been part of our phase one budget and approvals, but the project actually saved significant money by running this outside of the project rather than putting it through the typical development project that would have an 18% return and everything like that. All of that is avoided because of this structure. Oh, great. So there is, a, there is a higher price point, but mm -hmm. if you factor that in, it's, it's less because of the cost it would have been if it was in the project. Okay. Thank you. It, um, one more comment. This sure. would help because we have a drought as well, right? So yep. this would definitely relieve a lot of pressure from, you know, if we don't get rain in the future, I'm sure, right? Well, yeah, and if you really start thinking about when we have to make discretionary choices, watering of lawns and irrigation is usually one of the first to go over other priority needs, basic needs. Um, so this system kind of gives it, even despite restrictions, non-potable water, there's no real reason you'd have to put a restriction on non-potable water use. The potable water we're trying to conserve, non-potable is, is not really the, the case there because we're creating the non-potable. Right. Yeah. Hey, thanks. Thank you. I just was going to say uh, my colleagues asked all uh, questions I was concerned. I got all the answers. Great presentation and uh, looking forward to you uh, coming back. Thank you very much. Thanks. I know it was a little technical, so thanks for staying with us. No, it was good. Thank <laughs> you very much. Very enthusiastic about it. <laughs> Carl, next item, please. You see I got water in my hand right here. <laughs> <laughs> it's drinkable. <laughs> <laughs>
Item 13A is an informational presentation on financial matters, including a proposed amendment to the port's operating reserve policy. Hi, Commissioners. Uh, my name is Nate Cruz. I'm the Acting Deputy Director of Finance Administration. Um, I'm here tonight to, to talk to you about some financial matters, specifically our debt coverage policies and our operating reserve policy. Um, there has been a lot of happy news today about the recovery and you know how well things are going and coming back, especially on the heels of Fleet Week. Uh, but in the, for the context of this presentation, I think it's useful to go back to July of 2020 through June of 2021. That's fiscal year 21, right? We had, that was the first fiscal period that we were entirely in COVID. Uh, we were just getting out of shelter in place. We didn't have a vaccine yet and the port's revenues were really, really hurt, right? And, and as a result of the lack of tourism and the shelter-in-place orders, uh, our revenues went way down. We lost money that year, and that had lots of ramifications to our operations. Um, we had to halt a lot of capital projects uh, and cut some services. We maintained all the mission-critical stuff, but it also had some ramifications to our debt and, and how the rating agencies look at us, and so we're going to get into that a little bit more. So. We're back in time, right? Fiscal year 21. So as part of our bondholder, part of our contract with our bondholders, uh, there's you know, scores and scores of requirements on, on everybody, um, including these, this thing called a debt coverage requirement. Uh, and there's, there's two specific tests. One is that we make enough operating income in a year, and that's you know, revenues, less expenses, uh, such that the operating income is greater than or equal to one times our annual debt payment amount, right? We have enough profit at the end of the year, so to speak, to pay our, our debt bill. It's pretty simple. Uh, the second test is a little bit of a nuance. You take all that operating income, but now you add in our fund balance. That's that savings account that we dipped into to get through COVID. We, we can add our fund balance to that number, and that combined amount needs to be equal to or greater than 1.3 times the annual debt service amount. So you can see on the right, and it's a little too small, but there's a, a red oval on the bottom. That's an excerpt from our fiscal 21 financial statement. And in that year, we lost, according to the financial statements, about $44 million. Um, and because of that, we failed that first test, right? We had negative income. That does not exceed the debt service amount. We failed that test. Um, however, we do carry a a pretty healthy fund balance. It, we, we dipped into it, but it's, it's still pretty good. Um, and, and that fund balance, uh, the, the scale of it helped us pass that second test. So we, we passed the second test. Now, it's important to note that we saw all, all this coming. Very early on in the fiscal year, we alerted the rating agencies and the bond markets that, look, this, we, we have never seen these conditions before. Um, but we, we're forecasting at this point, we don't think we're going to pass the coverage requirement. Um, we did that because it's important, but it's important to also note that this is not a default. There are a number of requirements in our contract, the bondholders, but there are seven particular things that are like a big a default with a capital D and have some financial ramifications. This is not one of them. We made all of our debt service payments on time and in full, uh, but the failure of the coverage test one time does have some obligations. Uh, primarily that we have to hire a consultant to help us improve that ratio. So we did, you know, after the numbers came in and we, it was clear that we did indeed not pass our coverage test, um, we hired a consultant and the consultant's finding, their, their 
research sort of coincided with when we were preparing the budget. So a lot of their efforts were included in our budget, but we didn't have the official findings yet. So that's some of the timing of why we're coming to you today. Um, but the consultant's findings could be categorized in these three categories. I put them in these categories, not, not the consultant. But the first is to adjust our leasing practices as the market recovers, to phase out rent credits as market conditions improve. I know real estate's already doing that, and we've ended, I believe, almost all the rent credit programs except for the, uh, for the office sector, which is still definitely struggling with uh, the slow return to, return to the office. Uh, the second suggestion was to consider rent increases in sectors that were less impacted by COVID. And the Port Commission recently approved parameter rents, which sort of brought our, our rent schedule back into what the market would bear. So, we're, so this, this category of suggestions is more of an ongoing effort, and we will continue to adjust as the market adjusts. The second category is interagency savings. Um, a significant portion of our expenses is to pay other city agencies for their services. Um, and some specific recommendations came out about the fire department and the city attorney's office. Uh, and we're, we've begun conversations with those departments to see if there's some efficiencies to be had there. That's a longer term conversation uh, that we hope to reflect in future budgets. But right now, we're just in sort of a staff level conversations. The last category is just about internal financial practices. Uh, specifically, one of them uh, about reviewing how we categorize expenses as either capital or operating. Operating expenses affect that coverage calculation. Capital expenses do not. And so they suggested we take a very fine, sharp pencil to make sure that we're categorizing things in the right buckets so that we're appropriately reflecting the, the coverage. The second, and we're, we're already doing that. You know, we're, we're about to embark on closing our financial statements for fiscal year 22, and we've got some new practices in place that already reflect these, these suggestions. Um, the second suggestion under this third category was to use stimulus to offset operating expenses that would also improve our coverage ratio. That has already been included in the budget that you uh, approved and the Board of Supervisors approved, so we've already kind of put that in the bank, so to speak. And the last suggestion uh, is to consider changing the test itself. This one I don't, this one I'm not sure has, has much of a, as much of an opportunity for us. Um, we're a fairly small issuer amongst tax exempt revenue sort of authorities. There's parking operators and other ports. And the coverage test that we have is fairly standard in the market. It's understood, bond buyers get it, doesn't require any special explanation. The act of making our test an anomaly in the market would narrow the number of buyers who might buy our bonds, and that could cost us money too. So we're going to look at this. We're already talking to financial advisors about this, but this one requires some more homework before we decide to, to engage with it. Okay, so the second financial matter to talk about is our operating reserve amendment. Um, in 2008, the Port Commission wisely adopted a policy requiring us to set aside a reserve of 15% of operating expenses. Um, we used that fund balance I referenced earlier is that reserve, and we far exceeded that 15% every year. 15% really only gets us almost to two months of expenses. It's not, it doesn't really give us enough running room to come up with solutions. So we've always managed it much, much more uh, uh, in excess of the 15%. During COVID, we did get down to about 50%, but that's improving because of the recovery and the receipt of, of stimulus. So what, what we're proposing here, and with the assistance of an FA who did some research to what some of our sister agencies are doing with their, uh, 
with their reserve policies, we're proposing to increase the requirement to 50%. Uh, so in an emergency, that would give us uh, enough time to really identify solutions to, to, to come to you with a supplemental appropriation if we need to, or to pursue you know, stimulus options if they're out there. It, 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 so it sort of matches the requirement to our practice uh, and, and buys us an appropriate amount of time. This is also uh, sort of a homework assignment that Commissioner Wu Ho gave us in finance when, before she left as we approved the, uh, the last budget. And I, I'm sorry I couldn't, couldn't bring this back to her in time, but, but this is also sort of part of her legacy. Um, so those are the two matters I wanted to bring to you today, and I'm happy to answer any questions that you have. Thanks, Nate Cruz. I like the way you uh, presented yourself there. Yeah. Um, at this time, let's open it up for public comment. Is there any public comment in the room? Seeing none, Jenica will provide instructions now for remote participants. Thank you, President Adams. At this time, we will open the queue for anyone on the phone who would like to make public comment on item 13A. Please dial star three if you wish to make public comment. The system will let you know when your line is open. Others will wait on mute until their line is open. Comments will be limited to three minutes per person. The queue is now open. Please dial star three if you wish to make public comment. At this time, there are no members of the public on the phone wishing to make public comment. Thanks, Jenica. Thanks for all of today. Uh, public comment is closed. Commissioner Lee. <clears throat> well, I mean, it is what it is, right? I mean, COVID killed everybody. Uh, everybody's revenue. We're just trying to do our best to try to catch up. And I think uh, streamlining and, and doing what you're doing is uh, what I guess we're supposed to be doing. So I guess just have to wait and see after you guys do your um, streamlining and checking with the departments and things what you can cut um, I, I mean I think our job is right now to try to bring everything back and try to bring revenue and 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 we know that your job is to try to balance the book so I mean great report I mean it's to be expected especially in the business world we know so well welcome to to your new job <laughs> welcome to <laughs> balancing the books for us thank you <laughs> Thanks, Commissioner Lee. You done? done? I'm done. Okay, thanks, Commissioner Lee, for your comments. Commissioner Gilman. Um, Nate, thank you for a really comprehensive report and really appreciate how you broke it all down for us. I definitely support raising our reserve requirement to 50%. Um, and I just had an odd question, and maybe it's just me, um, but I've always been wanting, to, for five years I've been wanting to ask this question, and you sort of opened the door for me, so I'm going to ask it. So, in this spaces I've worked in in real estate, we call it a reserve. We don't call it a fund balance. Why are you using that terminology instead of just calling it an overall reserve? You know, I don't know why the terminology is what it is. It's, I think, what we, we think of sort of in the public sector and private in, in, in other government positions I've had outside of the Bay Area. We call it a fund balance. Okay. So it's That's a good question. Yeah. Term. Okay, because... Yeah, but it, it serves that same function of... If, if you've got an emergency, that's that's the pile of money you can dip into. And then to, I'm assuming in accounts that are restricted, like the Maritime Fund or others, they carry their own fund balances? Uh, we carry one consolidated okay. fund balance, and we're restricted by the overall port right. mission and the restrictions on how we use those funds that we've we've generated on, on in the port jurisdiction. Okay. Thank you. 
culture? Thank I think you. I might know the answer to that question. I think it's because governments think of everything in terms of the fund. So we're the enterprise fund. That's the port, um, the harbor fund. And so we think of what is the balance of our harbor fund right. rather than exactly. reserve. Uh, so I think that's the government lingo. Okay. Mm -hmm. I was just, I've always wanted to ask that. And since you use that word interchangeably in your presentation, I thought it was a perfect time to ask. Thanks. Thank you. Vice President Brent. Nate, thank you so much for this presentation. So happy that uh, things, no matter how things are, you make them seem like they're not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm so, hiding a lot inside <laughs> so, during COVID especially. So I really appreciate your presentation. And I think the, the, the good news out of this is that we hired a consultant and they gave us some great recommendations. Um, you know, I think it's great to, to increase our operating reserve to hopefully be, be prepared for that we don't have a next time, but the next time. Okay. And um, you're doing a great job. Yeah. Thank you, Nate. <coughs> Nate, um, you seem, uh, which I like, you're very confident, very comfortable up there at the mic. You explained everything very articulately. Thanks for stepping up as acting. Um, two questions I have. Is inflation or, because sometimes I feel we're in a recession, I'm not quite sure sometimes. I kind of think it. I think they said in Washington, if you have two bad quarters, you're in a recession. And I know we're going into the midterms, but will inflation or the recession affect us in any kind of way? Uh, certainly. I, I'll take, take the question two separate parts. For inflation, um, you know, wages, are certainly the biggest part of, of our annual operating expenses. So to the extent that labor MOUs incorporate inflation adjustments, those have a very direct and, and significant impact on our operating expenses. Um, a lot of other organizations that have a heavy debt profile, like the airport perhaps, with a lot of variable rate debt, fluctuations in inflation that might change the, the debt service payments that, may, that they would need to make those can also be significant. We're, we're somewhat insulated from that. We have no variable rate debt. It's all very fixed. Um, inflation also hurts us on the construction side. All the capital projects that we're trying to deliver, I mean, before all of this construction costs were escalating faster than the general inflation rate, that seems to not, I, I don't know what, what, what's happening in the current market, but lately it's been, that, that, that trend has continued and that continues to pressure our ability to deliver capital projects. Um, the recession question, I think, is, is, a, is the scarier one for me. Um, you know, you know what, what the real estate market does if there's major shifts in demand for, for office space or tourism changes and people's discretionary dollars to come to San Francisco and enjoy this amazing amenity that we have to offer, is that diminishes, that's going to really impact our ability to, to raise revenue as well. So there's, there's a lot of exposure and risk. Um, you know, when we come to you with financial projections, certainly lately, there's a, there's a huge degree of uncertainty in, the, in those projections. Um, and so I think what you pointed out are, are, are two real, real things that we keep an eye on in finance to, to try to, uh, you know, look at fund balance or other solutions to, to, to mitigate the, those risks. Thanks, Nate. Good job. Keep it moving. Um, Carl, next item, please. Item 14 is new business. I have not recorded any new business. Uh, I just want to uh, thank the uh, 
all your crew in the back for staying late, staff. Thanks everybody for staying late. It's uh, been a it's been a long day. Thank you. I move that we adjourn in the memory of Michael Hammond. Second. All in favor, say aye. 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 Opposed. It is twelve after six. Looks like. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.